Well, hi everyone. Uh, this is Allison McDowell from The Kitchen Today. Uh, thanks for joining in. Uh, this is a bit of an impromptu live stream, but I, um, I was putting some things together. Actually, a, a friend shared some really useful information uh, that I was thinking about over the past couple days, these sorts of how things have been unfolding under um, uh, through uh, the uh, the Substack uh, thing, and you know, I've been really interested in trying to figure out sort of the nature of what was going on and looking at at, uh, at looking at it as a case study uh, in a lot of the things I've been researching since the fall around emergence and complexity and uh, uh, stigmergy uh, and the ant computer and social computing and messaging, and then you know, all the way back to this idea of uh, sort of cognitive domain management, right? Like how uh, we're being steered in digital territories in particular, but then that does carry over to our actual real lives. Um, how we look at the world and the stories, largely stories that are given to us to inhabit and sort of roles and characters that are given us to inhabit. And uh, yesterday, Cliff and I, we were, we were recording uh, a bit of a sort of a debrief and reflections and learning opportunities because I'm, I'm sort of framing this. And, you know, if, if you're not sure exactly what's going on with all of that, I would say uh, if you look to my blog, like there's the last three or four pieces um, that sort of says what has unfolded over the last few days on this Substack thing. Um, which I, I now, you know, I, I only created a Substack account to address this situation and then I deleted it. So I, it's not, you know, but anyway, there's documentation, documentation there. And what I want to do today is not so much, I mean, there are particulars about the, the context of that situation that I want to explore, but it isn't really to, um, you know, I'm showing up in this discussion and the conversation I had with with Cliff yesterday, and it's still sort of ongoing. So we'll release that soon. Uh, but it's really just to sort of think about and reflect on um, what it what it is like, what these tools really are, how they're actually used, and to what end. And I think uh, this situation happened to me, so I can speak to it directly because I had my. Uh, view on it. Uh, but I would say that it's very likely that similar things are happening across all sorts of other social media apps uh, for all sorts of other sort of uh, hive mind consciousness building, group group think building, uh, reality management structuring. And, you know, as we move forward, you know, we are, we're seeing political candidates come on the scene and all this stuff. What I really think this is, is, I mean, and it has been, you know, clearly for at least, you know, 10 plus years, um, a test bed, really like a behavioral management test bed uh, that's involved in a lot of um, like testing of reality, testing of messages, this idea of really grounded in marketing. And, uh, you know, I know there are some people like Danny Katz, like this idea of like linguistic programming. And, you know, there's all this stuff about like neuro-linguistic programming and how we use language and how we use stories to create realities. And people who are more attuned to how that works or um, can create realities for people that maybe don't even know that that's going on. And so I think that what I'm trying to do in this discussion is is um, really maybe explore some things, uh, some ideas, and maybe look at some of the, uh, it's almost like a magician, you know, who's who's doing a trick or someone who has like card tricks, right? And, and there's, um, you can get really absorbed in um, the, the performance, right? To the point that you just sort of lose track of yourself. You lose track of what's going on and you're captivated by the performance such that you're sort of drawn in in this unthinking way. But if someone points out the, 
the, the trick behind the trick, someone says, oh, I think it actually there, this is how they do it, right? Then it's hard to go back and see the magic of it anymore. And and part of what, when I waited in the past, I, I waited in for two days on that Substack, and it really felt like in some ways people were operating um, without full cognizance of their own agency, almost like they were enchanted, you know, Um, and, you know, and I'm not saying that the the person who ran the substack was intentionally enchanting them, but just that they were sort of bumping along. And and this is sort of where we're going with the ant computer is that we, we inhabit spaces that have social socially constructed rules, some of which are overtly conveyed and some which which are uh, quietly conveyed. And our behaviors in these uh, digital spaces are governed by the, the rules spoken and unspoken. And then we try to sort of jostle ourselves in the pecking order to sort of uh, find satisfaction in being part of that community. And, and I very much saw that. And so uh, this morning when I was trying to sort through it all, well, actually, yesterday, I want to start off. So this is... Uh, uh, this is a quote, and I'm, I'm sorry for, if it's a little crowded today, but I couldn't find a good way to situate the screen. So we'll just deal with like the smaller section of, of this, the uh, presentation, and hopefully that's okay. Uh, so uh, s- someone who follows me, and I, I actually, we, we collaborated together uh, f- for a bit uh, on one of these other platforms, uh, goes by Quantum Heart Cafe, and uh, shared this comment on one of my blog posts about what had unfolded under the Substack. And I thought it was so excellent because really this is like the optimum, this is like the best scenario is that when you can create a space that people as peers can collaborate around ideas, then you really start to build like some synergy and it's excellent. So I have been talking about the ant computer and a lot of that came out of uh, my friend Steffer. She used to blog at a piece of mindful her work around uh, artificial pheromones and stigmergy. And, you know, I realized that was really important. And so I was doing some work into that. And then, uh, Quantum Heart Cafe, uh, you know, I did, I did, I started to read aloud. I haven't finished it yet, but of of Oliver Reiser's World Sensorium because I thought it was really important. So uh, Quantum Heart Cafe got her their own copy and uh, was reading it and really thinking about this idea of the omega point and convergence and the world brain. And, and then happened to see a book in a used bookstore uh, that led her to think based on some of the things I was posting and actually uh, this other woman's uh, lovely guest post on slime mold, uh, which is another form of the ant computer, right? You've got social insects and then you have these uh, slime mold cells uh, to make some interesting connections. And so I just want to start out by reading her comment. I've uh, I, I, I've changed a few words around just to make it broad because I don't want to be targeting just one particular person per se. I think that this is more systemic. And so when I'm trying to expose the quote unquote magician sleight of hand, uh, it's not one particular magician. It's sort of uh, all the people who knowingly or not might be put in a position of uh, being a magician over the group. Uh, so... Uh, So, okay, so this is Quantum Hearts Cafe's comment. Uh, About a month ago, I went to the used bookstore and came across a book called Emergence by Stephen Johnson. I didn't know what it was about, but I just finished Oliver L. Reiser's book, World Sensorium, and he spoke about Emergence a lot, and so I bought it. A couple of days later, I started reading the book, and right away, Stephen starts talking about the slime mold. I have read a few of your articles on slime mold, and those were from my my friend who did this guest post, Uh, and I am learning a bit more about complexity theory and agents reading this book. And so again, when we say agents, we don't mean like 
intelligence agents. We mean agents in the game. So like game theory. So if you hear me use the word agent later, it's not within some sort of like deep state context. It's really like you are a participant in a game on a game board, like a token. Okay. So that's how we're using the word uh, agent. Uh, so, okay. So, so I am learning a bit about, more about complexity theory and agents reading this book. I know you made a connection with the ant computer and what happens when uh, the substack also reminds me of slime mold. In Emergence, the book, Stephen Johnson talks about how individual slime mold cells trigger the formation of an organism by emitting something called cyclic AMP, like a pheromone. And those with the most cyclic AMP I wonder if it would be the equivalent to influencers attracting an audience. They could attract enough slime cells to make an organism. And then I think about Oliver L. Reiser's polarization. And I think he also talked about a substrate that the polarized cells live in. And I think about how social media platforms are sort of like a substrate where more polarization can occur. And that's really, I think that's really important, this idea of ener emitting energy or emitting pheromones and how that impacts the influencer class and that you're attracting, right? You're attracting an audience, you're attracting readers. And when, when they come to you in the format, and this is something Cliff and I talk about in our conversation, it's sort of top down, like there's, um, or it's more centralized. So there's, uh, unlike maybe Twitter or Facebook that's more distributed, a substack is someone's sort of intellectual property. It is their little walled garden that they invite people into to do the thing. And so um, there is an influencer at the top and the person with the most uh, cyclic AMP uh, would probably uh, start drawing more and more audiences. And of course, maybe with help from some algorithmic <laughs> management too. I mean, that there, there's both of those things. So, and if you get enough, uh, if, if as an influencer agent, you get enough additional cells to group together around you, uh, you can create your own organism. And I feel like maybe some of these substacks are creating their own organisms that are uh, perhaps have a certain function behind them, a certain driving goal, although it may not be clear what the goal of these various things are. And so a key part for me and sort of stepping away from polarizing political rhetoric uh, is was Oliver Reiser's book, World Sensorium, and how he talked about social physics and the, the polarity among groups driving forward this agenda to um, what what really looks like the omega point, right? The, the Talhard Desjardins omega point, a unified consciousness. Um, now, Oliver Reiser describes it as the we are neuroblasts of a world sensorium, or you could say we are slime mold cells of the no the noosphere. <laughs> um, but it's a similar thing. It's it's bringing people together. It's bringing people together in that way. So um, you've got an, uh, someone who is transmitting some sort of energetic impulse that is strong. They're aggregating people to them, and then they're steering them. They're direct them because the purpose of the slime mold example is that you um, they are under there's some sort of environmental trigger that means that they have to relocate they're, they're on the move right and so there's the idea of assembly and then move and so what I, I might pose is that in these substack spaces uh, there are people and it's perhaps even the person who's the catalyzing force may not actually know where we're moving to but there is this Im imperative to aggregate and move um, and and so and how that movement happens um, is through polarity and so i think what really happened to me on the substack is that inadvertently um based on on someone uh, her name is celia farber uh pulling up a clip that you know 
her, her context is someone mentioned it in a comment. And so she pulled a clip of mine out that was a year old and she sort of latched onto that to create a polarizing field. Um, now, I don't know her. I, I don't know anything about her. I'm not on Substack. I, I'm not a particular affiliate of, you know, I'm not really even an active participant in any way in the health freedom community. So so it was weird that I got sort of pulled in and, and, and put as a counterpoint on this polarity. Uh, but the thing I noticed about Celia, um, and this is kind of interesting to me, is that her uh, Substack photo, and I don't know, it's not her main photo. Her Substack is called like the Truth Barrier, which seems like an unusual name to choose, Truth Barrier. Um, but when you click on it, the little uh, placeholder like on the tab uh, is this image and, and, it, and it comes up and it's clearly an Aurora Borealis. And in, in this way, the Aurora, Aurora Borealis has magenta and green, like bright magenta and lime green. And, and uh, you know, uh, we know that magenta is sort of an encoded color and then green is the opposite on the polarity there. So you, you almost even in the image that she's selected have this polarizing polarizing feeling to it. And then uh, Quantum Heart Cafe finishes. It says, it seems influencers are like an individual agent or cell that send out a signal or pheromone on behalf of a larger system, which the individual agents in the system are not aware of, and gather individual people to a group and steer them where the system wants them to go. And so I just thought that that was a really concise and brilliant analysis um, of of what may is happening, <laughs> what I believe may be happening in these substacks. And, and I've written some additional context about that on, on my blog, wrenchinthegears.com, if you, if you want to look at that too. So that's where I would like to start. And then uh, this morning, a friend, uh, we were, you know, we, we exchange information and uh, this person had sent me uh, a, a paper that was real. Well, actually it wasn't this paper. It was, I think, a, a different uh, entry that described this, but it was something called the elaboration likelihood model of persuasion. The elaboration likelihood model of persuasion. And it was from an organization called Behavior Works Australia. And I started looking at it and I was like, wow, this is actually packed with a lot of really useful information to understand how we're being managed and what I'm calling like these digital sandboxes or these digital walled gardens. There's a science to it, right? And that's one of the things when I had weighed in briefly on the Substack that I was trying to explain to people about the game theory and decision theory and management and choice trees and there's a whole science that really has come out of the Cold War, uh, Cold War game theory. Uh, so for 75 years, they've really been refining these games um, of social behavior and individual choices in, in societies and they know how to game people. Um, and, and so it's a game and I kept saying, hey guys, you actually have to understand the simulation. I'm, I'm wondering if this thing that's actually unfolding is part of a simulation. It feels like maybe it could be a simulation. Um, and, and then no one, it was like everyone was blank. I mean, not everyone, a, a handful of people engaged meaningfully, but the, the vast majority, and there were hundreds and hundreds of comments on, on this blog, and then there was a follow-up blog, and then I dropped off, and then she did a couple more. So there are many, many, many people engaging, but they, they simply didn't have 
the capacity to engage with any of the material that I was presenting. And, and I was having a hard time with that, um, understanding what was happening. And so this helped me understand what it was. Like when I said, no, you, it's good to understand the simulation technologies because then you can, at least if not totally avoid them, you can identify them along the way. You can identify those, those games. So uh, I'm gonna just stop for a second and pull up, run a couple clips. Uh, th these are by Kevin Werbach. And Kevin Werbach is, uh, here's Kevin, uh, he's a professor at uh, Wharton. Uh, Wharton is the business school at the University of Pennsylvania, and that's where I live in Philadelphia. And, you know, here he is uh, speaking to the alumni of, of Wharton and giving them the you know, the insider secrets of how it all works. And he's like, hey, guess what? The, the rules matter and the rules can be surprising. And then ultimately he says, you know, you guys want to make the rules. And if you can kind of see behind him, there are these waveforms that are coming out. That's the backdrop of this uh, alumni event that he was at. So it is a frequency. And what, I, what I'm saying is I think these devices are collectively entraining people to be part of the slime mold <laughs> um, in motion. And for, for reasons that we don't quite yet understand. So I'm going to run just a couple short clips of Kevin to sh show why it's important to understand the game. And for me, the game is sort of like this, you know, this magic trick that is happening. So here, here is him on the game mechanics. And this is something that, that Cliff and I talked about yesterday, and we're going to put it out in our talk. But um, the game, if, if you imagine that like almost like society itself is a game, Right. And, and again, some of the rules are very clearly stated and then some of them you have to infer. But within the communities of certain of these sub stacks, there are um, uh, there's sort of a currency, a currency of clicks and likes and uh, participation and responses and all of that structure is part of sort of the game mechanics. So I would invite you to consider if you've been part of a sub stack that maybe feels um, like there is a, a a cultural uh, a consensus around culture and there is a currency that maybe is in how the lead influencer, the owner of the Substack, uh, interacts with the audience and readership, you know, and especially because these models, like let's be honest, that the, the plan is in the future that these are going to be monetized, even though a lot of them are free now, that there will be monetized in tiered levels, right? So, you know, if you don't pay anything, you, you have a basic level of service and then the more you pay, the more access you get to, uh, to the influencer. Uh, that's and and then the more affirmation on your character and the archetype that you're playing in the system. So uh, okay, so here is the first one from Kevin. Let me just okay. Because if you look at lots of activities in the real world through the lands of games, they start to look very familiar. So. Um, what is the uh, monthly sales competition where you get prizes based on how much you uh, sell, other than what in games we would call a challenge? In uh, United's Frequent Flyer program, when you go from being a premier to a premier executive to uh, 1K or whatever the next level is above that, um, that's a leveling system. Uh, we know that, uh, and people in the games industry know how those systems work. They design them every day in these video games. Same sorts of things get used in uh, other kinds of real-world business contexts. We see teams, we see scores, we see quests, we see reward mechanics, um, even things like badges. So the American Express Platinum card, um, or the black card, or whatever you get above that, um, is partly something that gives you some benefits. Uh, but it's also something that you can whip out to impress your... 
I'm just gonna point out here for a second. So under, in the backdrop there, you can see the frequency and lifelong learning, which we know it's lifelong learning on the ledger. Uh, and uh, it's almost, it's not quite a closed circle. So that's indicating of like a cybernetic pathway. Uh, but this lifelong learning is that we're earning badges. Meanwhile, we're training the AI machine learning. And then underneath uh, the, the subhead after lifelong learning is making waves making waves. And so I think that this is all very encoded and important language to take note of. So I just wanted to say that. Your friends about your status level, um, that's a badge. And all of these structures are ones that are well established in the games world. And they're there in the real world as well. But we just haven't traditionally thought about them that way. We haven't looked at these activities through the lens of a game designer. So it turns out, actually, things like the frequent flyer programs, even though they have all of the elements of games, they've got points, they've got levels, um, they've got rewards, and so on and so forth, most of them are terrible games uh, because they haven't been designed as games. Um, people do them to get the rewards. They do them to get the benefits, but they're not designed to be fun. And what we're starting to find in the work that I and others are doing is that if you learn from and bring in people who have expertise in game design, in making things fun, it leads to real benefits and real increase in the engagement level um, and the business metrics. Because All right. So, so life can be a game, right? That's what they're saying. And it can be designed. And you can bring in people who are very knowledgeable in game design. So he's sort of framing it like uh, leaderboard culture, right? Or, you know, bonus points at the drugstore or your grocery store or your, the coffee shop you go to and how you can gamify that uh, loyalty, right? Loyalty points and make that engaging. Now, the layer underneath that is the military industrial complex, right? It is the Cold War. It is nuclear missile threat capacity. It is all of those things. So, you know, in this fun little lecture, he's sort of framing it like a certain kind of game and then broadening it out. But but the stakes are pretty high because if you look at any sort of military engagement strategy these days, they said, you know, the domain is cognitive. The next, the fifth generation warfare is control of the mind, control of consciousness. And at this point, they have very sophisticated uh uh, research around neuroscience, right? And around frequency, uh, anything from very basic, like again, like the neuro-linguistic programming and narrative storytelling to uh, potentially using the frequency vibrations in conjunction with nanoparticles or something like in and around us to steer people in ways that we are not necessarily readily aware of. So, okay, so that's, that's Kevin's first thing. And then this is just a short one here. He says, you should, you should make the rules, but the Wharton people are there to say that they're gonna make the rules. And the rules can be surprising. Again, when you're playing a game, you don't necessarily know what the rules are. You're just responding to them and interacting with the experience. Okay, so he says, when you're in a game, you may not even know what the rules are. You're just responding to them and interacting with the experience. And what I would say is these social media uh, spaces are sandboxes for that. You don't understand the rules. And I would say I didn't, and this is part of what I talk about with Cliff, is when I popped in and someone said, hey, 
you know, there's one of your clips over here on this place and, you know, heads up. And I thought, oh, well, let me pop over and see what it's about. And so I, you know, when I went, I, I was honestly not cognizant that there's a whole culture to Substacks. And I was just like, hi, I'm Allison. Do you want to know my perspective? Like, here's the link of the thing I wrote, you know, and I'm just like going all through it. And probably it was really disrupting the culture because there were rules in this space for how one interacts. And, um, you know, eventually everyone just went like silent. And then eventually the next day, the, the influencer in charge of the Substack created an, a new thread and then sort of tried to misrepresent me in a new way to see if that one would stick too. So, um, you know, there is a certain culture and it's really interesting to hear him talking about the fact that we don't understand the rules and we're interacting and we're somewhat inferring the rules as we interact with the quote unquote experience that's been created by the game designer. So the lesson that I take away and the message that I give to students in this area is be the designer. Be the one who makes the rules. Okay, so the game that the, that we are in is the game set up by people like at Wharton, uh, people at Stanford, people at MIT, Media Lab, uh, Johns Hopkins, Georgetown. Those are the people at the elite level who are making the rules, right, for the game that we don't even know that we're in. So I think that that's really, really important to keep in mind. Okay, so those are those are two clips. So this is important context. Um, and so so just back to. Uh, okay, so this, okay, so this is the paper, like, okay, so I'll just uh, read a little bit from the beginning. The elaboration likelihood model of persuasion, and they call this ELM. Uh, the field of persuasion research and practice is constantly on the lookout for ways to develop and deliver message content that can effectively raise awareness, generate, generate desired attitudes, uh, build confidence, establish social norms, engage audiences emotionally, and ultimately influence behavior. However, the large body of literature and case studies with this field highlight the challenges of such a task with persuasive endeavors often generating a range of mixed results, specifically on matters of important public policy. So this, this goes back to the nudging. These, these, are, these are nudging. So they're trying to figure out how to nudge us. And again, picture the slime mold. <laughs> They're trying to figure out what signal can they emit that will let us all clump together into a thing and then move in the direction that it, they want us to move in, right? The system wants us to move in. Uh, so, so that is really important. And so who is Behavior Works? It's interesting. It's based out of Monash, Monash, I don't know, I'm not Australian, University, uh, their Sustainable Development Institute. And it describes this as impact-driven behavioral researchers. And again, all of the work that I do is focused on social impact finance. So impact-driven is really important. And I would say uh, that this is probably the Australian equivalent of Ideas 42, uh, which I, or, or um, let's see, so Ideas 42, uh, which is a behavioral, uh, nudge unit type project. Well, they also have, let's see, the, the behavioral, um, I think, yeah, the behavioral insights team is the 
English version. Um, uh, so we are the original nudge unit. So they're the original nudge unit. And then we also have uh, Ideas 42, which came out of Harvard, and it's uh, using social science to steer behaviors. Now, I will say I have a friend who uh, was just coming back from the AERA conference in Chicago, again, Commodities Futures Trading, and I think AERA is like the American Educational Research Association, so social science, and you know, you downtown in these convention center areas because it's a really big conference they'll have banners right so there might be a custom banner up for like hey welcome aera people on these dates to chicago but uh, the 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 photo that this person sent it was actually two banners on the same uh, light pole so it was like two narrow banners one on one side one on the other so the other one was like health i don't know if it's health economics but it was definitely like health data and it was h-i-m-s-s which is one of the central uh health data analytics uh let me see little sis uh oh now it's stewards stewards of change it was connected to stewards of change and um uh yeah human services standpoint Oh gosh, Health Data Consortium. It's one of the big health interoperability programs. Um, H-I-M-M-S. Let me see if I do Health Institute, maybe. Uh, Institute for Health Metrics. Uh, it's not coming up. Maybe H-I-M-S-S. A Healthcare Information and Management Society. Um, yeah, so systems, Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society. And uh, yeah, they organized in 1961 as hospital management systems with electronic health records. And so on the one hand, you've got digital education and the social sciences of all of this nudging. And on the other side, you have the health stuff. So you've got your digital twins for your mind and like consciousness and cognitive skills. And then you've got the health data for your digital twin for your body stuff. So um Anyway, so that's the context of this persuasion. Uh, Monash University, it's in Australia, and it, you know it's important to note, so here they have a digital education research group, uh, lots of defense uh, research in the space. Uh, they're part of the carbon decarbonization effort. And what I found them initially, it was S with S CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. And they were the first people that I saw who were doing a programmable money with smart contracts, uh, targeting uh, people with disabilities in Australia. So if you had a public, uh, uh, you know, assistance due to uh, a disability that your money would be programmed on blockchain. And so again, while everyone else was running around saying how great, like what crypto coins they were buying, I was like, wait, 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 they're, they're, they're putting disabled people on blockchain and programming their money. This is a problem. Uh, the other thing that Monash was involved with that I, I added this information was this Neo World Academy, which was a behavioral management, gamified behavioral management system that was connected to uh, uh, this Franklin Lieberman, and, who was uh, with the New York, uh, Brooklyn, NAACP, uh, and, and doing a lot of stuff with special education students in, in New York City. So, um, so, so that's the context for this paper. Uh, Monash is also, you can see here, it says one of the uh, leading centers of nanoscience in Australia with world-class capabilities in nanoscale materials and nanobiotechnology. So, you know, if you're in Australia, I know I've been in touch with a few people lately about Australia, but there's sort of a lot going on with that. So, um, 
so that is the paper. And then I, I took some notes on, on it. Uh, but first I'm gonna show you a, uh, a, a diagram. So this is from the paper itself. And uh, I'll just, I'll walk through this first and then I'll go through. So I took some notes, I pulled excerpts. This is about an 11 page paper, so I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but uh, things that stood out to me about uh, what I experienced in this recent episode on Substack and then how it might relate to this model of persuasion. And, and again, very sophisticated going back uh, to the behavioral sciences that are connected to both the military and uh, intelligence interests and, you know, propaganda and Operation Mockingbird and all that stuff, like all the way back, right? Only now they can add, you know, deep fakes and uh, strategic narratives and feedback loops and bots and trolls and everything to sort of steer the behavior. Okay, so on this, they're talking about persuasive communication. So you're, com one, like, one, it's a top down. So there's some message that's trying to be communicated um, to an audience. So these are important things you're supposed to consider when you're trying to communicate something. And this is persuading someone to change their behavior. They're not, you're not just sharing information because, hey, I thought it would be nice for you to know this, but you're trying to actually identify a targeted behavior that you want to, uh, to adjust and either uh, make something having a, an, a, a, to reinforce a behavior, saying that's a great behavior, or saying that, oh, that's a bad behavior, or this is a good person, or this is a bad person. So you're trying to either uh, persuade people to go from one side or the other, or to reinforce their position in their given understanding to align with what you want them to align with. Okay, so first off, uh, they say, is your audience motivated? Like, are they listening to you? And, and that's key because I think what, what I experienced was that uh, if you understand a dynamic, I, as I'm coming to, of a substack is people are generally, sure, you might have a sublayer of people who have developed rapport through communicating within a said group and they have a reciprocal uh, Communic communication with each other, and, and that's something that gives them, you know, satisfaction. But most of the people there seem to be uh, looking up at the influencer and trying to sort of uh, get that attention and reaffirm their position in that relationship. So to have someone who is an unknown, I think someone actually, <coughs> they called me an agent of chaos yesterday, which or two days ago, I thought that was funny. I'm like, I'm not really chaotic. But if what you do is you have a very structured social rule set up and someone comes in and they, they're oblivious of the rules, um, you're going to notice. And so I think that's what led to that response. So is your audience motivated? Is it relevant to them? Do they need to think very hard about it? Because that's another thing. Like, how much intellectual time are they going to put into something? And, and, you know, that's what I've seen with my work um, sort of over and over again, which, you know, I get is that it's too hard. It's too long. And I'm not motivated to actually know anything about what you're trying to tell me. There, there isn't a motivation um, except for with a certain subset of people. And, and I've come to realize that that I'm going to be okay with that because I, what I'm doing is I'm not trying to get unmotivated people to pay attention. Like I'm, I'm too far ahead. Like my, the learning curve is too steep, you know, I think for most people, you have to actually want to know. Uh, two, can they process what you're trying to tell them? Uh, how much noise is there? Are they distractible? How many times do you have to repeat that? You know, you hear oftentimes, oh, you have to repeat something like seven times before people, it actually sticks. Like, do you have the structure to do that? Um, do they have a knowledge base to understand what you're trying to tell them? So these are the other things. And so... And then like, so what is the nature? How are you gonna get them to change their behavior? 
do you want them to, you have to understand where they are, right? And that's helpful for the sub stacks and these other social media platforms because you're building, and I'm not even saying that necessarily the influencer is aware of this, but the algorithms behind are developing really robust uh, parallel twinning mechanisms of you as an avatar in that platform, right? So, so they'll they'll know sort of what the the potential is for you, right? And and they'll know, okay, so am I trying to change a behavior or reinforce a behavior? Am I trying to make it a favorable, more favorable thoughts or more unfavorable thoughts? Okay, so I would say uh, in the case of what I experienced, definitely the plan was more unfavorable thoughts. These were, for the most part, people who had no idea who I was. Uh, there was very little information provided to the audience about me. And yet the uh, entire amplification of the cascade of events was to amplify unfavorable thoughts of Allison McDowell in the space. Um, and that's how it proceeded. So that was definitely you know, a track. Um, and then once you do your message, is there a change in the cognitive structure? So you need to be able to measure that. And that's why all of the social relationships have to be put into the digital walled garden so they can measure. So where were you before? We did an intervention. Where are you now? Okay. And, and if you, they can get it to stick, if they can actually get it up into your higher order thinking, then they call this like a central attitude change. Uh, Peripheral, which is over here, is something where uh, it's happening when you're simply distracted. You're not thinking about it very hard. You're distracted. And um, and it's just automatic. Like you're kind of half paying attention. Probably like when you're driving home from your commute on a, on a road you've driven millions of times and you're listening to something on the radio and you're just, you're driving there, but you're not really aware of every single progression. You're just, it's on autopilot. You, there are certain rules and you're just acting on autopilot. And what they say in the paper is if you're in this space of peripheral processing and peripheral operating, you can be steered pretty easily if they know what buttons to push, but it's not really sticky. It doesn't fundamentally change you at your core. So they can steer you for a while, but it's like um, a pheromone, an ant trail, that it'll be strong when it's initially put down uh, and it will get a lot of attention, but over time it fades. Uh, and, and that's the way with the peripheral. Like you'll, you'll have to keep laying down and reinforcing a certain behavior until people take it into themselves. And once they take it into themselves, you're down here at the central positive attitude change rather than up here at the peripheral. And, and it's interesting because I... Um, um, several people have told me there's a TV show out now uh, called uh, Peripherals, which I, I don't know about, but I think it might be people who are supposed to sort of like put themselves in other people's consciousness or something like that. So I, I, I found that sort of an interesting thing. So anyway, just, just to re reiterate, you, you identify, you know, your audience and your message, you find out, are they motivated? Can they handle your message? What direction are you steering them in? Uh, you you do the intervention, you measure it, and then uh, and then if you can stick it to them, then that becomes a central central behavior change program. So I think this is really important to understand, and not just like I, I'm able to see this very clearly because I just I have this experience fresh in my mind of how it played out. And again, while um, it's certainly uncomfortable to uh, you know for whatever reason, be put in under this spotlight and this scrutiny, which is like a very strange scrutiny because it, it wasn't actually about me or anything I said. It was simply uh, structuring me as uh, an object uh, and a polarizing object uh, to be reacted to uh, for a certain purpose, to, to advance another person's uh, end goal. But it, it really didn't have anything to do with me other than um, 
you know, I think that the information that was put in, and I talk about this in my latest post, was needed to be quote unquote pre-bunked. Uh, it was it was a the clip that was offered that I had made a year ago uh, was about uh, RFK Jr.'s book, the Fauci book, and pulling out aspects about talking about. Uh, uh, m mismanaged pandemics, uh, the role of early treatment protocols and drugs in that uh, program, because that was a major section of the early chunk of his book, uh, and then how those drugs uh, were are being restructured by his financial supporter, Steve Kirsch, into pay for success finance uh, schemes uh, that are linking emerging technology and sort of what I think will ultimately be a predatory financial situation into uh, new forms of revenue uh, generation for the drug companies. And uh, so that's what the, the thing was about, but that was never discussed. Really, that the focus was uh, more unfavorable thoughts than before about Alison McDowell, a person most people actually didn't know anything about uh, before the stigmergic operation started. So these are my notes. And um, so th this is where I'm at now. So the, these few things I sent to a friend, I, you know, Cliff and I are going to follow up our conversation. So I sent them to him. I'm like, this is makes so much sense. Um, because if you think about how things are on social media, think about how they were maybe um, when you got, first got onto social media and it was very novel. And then maybe even early in the lockdowns, right? Like if people felt... Uh, overwhelmed and alienated from people in their nearby proximity and they were looking for other people online who f had similar uh, had similar uh, outlooks and it felt pretty good to find, oh, there's more people out there. Uh, but then ultimately it started over the, 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 the progression of the lockdowns, I think, to become more and more polarized and more and more uh, linking on to uh, sort of team identities around thinkers, certain thinkers and uh, then certain people were pitted off against other people and they were moving people into a peripheral state of mind, okay? So if if the central order of thinking is a higher order, right, you actually have to devote, and I'm not saying this in a um, snooty way, it just, it's a fact, like your brain it uses a lot of energy and so a lot of times you're just working on autopilot and doing your daily life and then sometimes you actually have to focus and think, right? And it, there's an energy budget in that. So central thinking is not as common as the peripheral thinking, but in order to make a behavior stick, you've got to shift people in that. So you've got to convince them that the energy is worth it, which, you know, I have not been super effective in convincing a lot of people that putting energy into understanding my material makes sense for them. Uh, but uh, here, let me let me see if I can up the, make that make that bigger for people. Okay. Um, so so the peripheral thinking is automatic. So if you imagine that what we're, we may be dealing with in the substacks is an experiment in use sociality, right? The the social insect side of things, which I have been looking into since the fall. And again, Seffers had done this early work on stigmergy and steering, so important. And so um, looking at the ant computer, the bees, the termites, the social insects, uh, and how swarm intelligence and this idea of sort of unthinkingness, because that's the part of the thing about the ants, they're socially conditioned and individually they're um, not super bright or creative, but they can be brought together to create really complex structures. And so if you imagine that from a digital standpoint, that you've got a, a lot of people who are brought into uh, digital sandboxes or digital walled gardens, and you decondition them away from central thinking, you you uh, give them lots of, you know, 
uh, clicks and likes to follow to outsource their thinking to other people and then you reinforce that because if you do the outsourcing of your thinking to other people then you get to be part of the club and then you get to, in the club you talk about the, the 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 hero or the influencer that you all like and then that is reinforced and then eventually you're really you you're spending all your time chasing these new um, influencers uh, which there's an explosion right like there's so much and, and I even saw this early on around uh, impact media they talked about the importance of of curation that in the future on blockchain you would have tokenization of, of people who are quality quote-unquote curators but what it means to be a curator is ultimately to shape a reality to shape a story for a given set of people and so if you're curating for someone else their story the people who are inhabiting that story have kind of outsourced their agency to you as the story creator and I think as as the blow up because you know the sub stacks and the shifts to Rockfin and these other alternative platforms have to happen after the deplatforming I think that those were ready in the, the wings. Uh, those things, you know, Substack was started 2017, 2018, but it, it was uh, getting out the kinks and then ready to do the capture in 2021. And I think that's really important to understand. And I'm not saying that the people who are on those platforms are, you know, terrible people. I wish they would understand better about how the blockchain stuff is about signaling and then take into account things like these really horrible things that are coming, that the digital twin is going to be built on blockchain. But I think that they were steered there on purpose. And so so Substack is, is a part of that. Um, so yeah, so they would like people to stay in the peripheral because then they are steerable and they're listening to influencers and they're defending their team rather than thinking about new things. And, and this is another th something I've talked with Jason about in the past. I said, you know, I don't, um, you know, and there are people and in including people that I, I used to know and feel like I was pretty close friends with who mostly have not moved on um, conceptually in two years. Um, now, Sure, they'll take in a new bit of information um, and add it like a news, something new from World Economic Forum, but they're not foundationally developing new frameworks or concepts. They're, they're just adding little bits to the, the framework they've already been given. And I, I think that's by design. I think I think the World Economic Forum itself, the people who are glomming onto them as the enemy per se, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying they're the good guys, but if you create that as a magnet, an attention magnet, then you can hold people in that sway, right? And then they don't look at anything that's not coming out of that source if, if their whole identity of how they understand it is focused on that. And so, you know, I'm not trying to say like I'm superior, but like, you know, I have people that were like, oh, I used to follow Allison. I just, I just don't so much anymore. But what they don't realize is that probably every three months or so I'm developing a new chunk of understanding. So I came into it with social impact finance, but then, you know, moving into youth sociality and now looking at direct applications of, uh, the, this cognitive domain management, this is important. We have to deconstruct how they're doing it in order to um, diffuse it, I think. And so uh, unfortunately, a lot of attention, the attention economy is being given into uh, fear porn around like the next info drop from the World Economic Forum, rather than to figure out like, you know, let us look at the scientists who are setting up the steering influences. Let us look at the nanotechnology research. Let us look at the places in our own backyard. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the people who've been sharing their letters from the labyrinth about where they are, because that's, I think, how we're going to get out of this. And, and, you know, I'm not saying this to, you know, diminish other people who, who haven't, like, kept moving, but I do find it strange. And again, this is part of my motivation. Why is that? How have people been contained? Um, 
because I, again, I don't think it's something that they're not smart or that they're not good people, but there's something that's containing them. And, and, and I'm trying to figure it out. So this is part of the figuring it out thing. Okay. So, uh, so the other thing that I've been talking about is like, do your own research, right? Sure. Look at other people, but steer yourself. Come from your own intuition. See something that happens to you and then sort it out from your own understanding rather than to simply be a consumer. Because I think that is the place of empowerment because then you control your central understanding. You're not outsourcing your central apparatus to someone else through some sort of ramped up per peripheral management. You're doing it, right? And then, then you're deciding your own motivations. You're deciding what drives you. And then, and then that means whatever you find, it stays with you. You know, and I've had people, you know, occasionally say, I don't know how you hold all of this stuff in your head like this so hard. And, and what I would say is it's not because I'm somehow more skilled in that. It's because I've done it for myself. Like I've made giant maps because I wanted to know, not because somebody was paying me, not because somebody told me to do it, not because I was trying to impress someone because I wanted to know. And it was kind of grueling, but in doing that work, it stays with you in a way it doesn't if you're merely reading someone else's work. If you're reading someone else's work and as much as I, you know, I love that people do follow my work, but what I've said is like at this point, you know, I have, a, I have a talk I gave recently about this is how I think about things. And I have sort of five slides where I lay out some of these, these structures around complexity and emergence and the sustainable development goals. And like you can apply that to your stuff. And then all of the things you know will stick with you because it's part of the processing system of your mind rather than you're going to have a really hard time understanding what's in my, what, what I've written because what I've written is an outpouring and a synthesis of what's in my mind. And, 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 um, and you can have that too. But the thing is, there's every single influence in the digital space to keep you from doing that, right? To keep you from engaging at your core being because they actually need you emotionally responsive and triggered and steerable. And the peripheral state is the steerable state. So, you know, an, a fair, an artificial pheromone is not going to take you off the track if you are on your own course. It is going to take you off the track if you are uh, distracted by following so many other people and you don't know what's what and they're telling you contradictory information and they're changing the terms all the time, you're going to be a mess, right? Um, and I mean, I, I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm just, I say it from a place of caring. Like if, if you're driving your own bus, you get to decide where you're going with the bus. <laughs> so try that out. Try that out. Um, Okay. And yeah, this idea of the, you know, being rewarded by the queen bee, there, there's not a lot of rewards for independent thinking. I have to say, like, I guess the reward is that occasionally people try to, you know, make an identity for themselves by undermining you. I mean, that's where it is to be an independent thinker. But it, for me, it, um, you know, it's interesting because I think that maybe early on, like I've had several run-ins with things on social media. Um, and, I've learned to navigate it better because of what I realized after some time is I don't self-identify with the currency of the realm of these digital spaces. I'm not actually looking to be friends with the queen bee and sit at the popular girls table. 
Like that's not what drives me, right? And I know that about myself. And I know that um, increasingly, and I haven't, I still haven't gotten around to doing my UN um, talk, uh, but what drives me is feeling like my agency is to set intentions in the world and tell stories about the places that affect me and, and put the story together for other people and feel like in that we can make change. Now, I'm not saying that nobody else's change is valid and that you couldn't, you know, people feel this way or that way about politics. You know, that's not my bag. People feel this way or that way about legislation, about, uh, you know, certain kind of activism intervention, certain about of like escape routes or prepper culture or whatever. And there are a lot of different things. But for me, and none of those felt right for me. And I knew what felt right for me, right? I, I knew that that's, I, I wasn't gonna try on a costume that was uncomfortable for me. And so when I realized that I think what this is is a, an engagement around spirit, an engagement around soul, an engagement around energies. And I think these people, whether you're coming at it from an esoteric end, uh, from, from a nanotechnology biophysics end, there is something else beyond what we see. And so we can access that too. So, um, you know, I'm not telling people what to do, but for me, when I realized I don't, I don't need to be, I, need, I don't need to seek validation in those spaces because it's not my game, because I can't win that. Um, so anyway, so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's that. Um, okay, so here are, so the closing line uh, of this article I thought was really interesting. Okay, so th again, this is how they close out the thing. Models such as the ELM, uh, the elaboration likelihood model of persuasion. So models such as the ELM highlight how mass media and other forms of influence involve a complex web of determinants, variables, and processes. And the, that the extent and nature of a person's thought response to external information can at times be more important than the information itself. So just think about that, okay? Mass media and other forms of influence. So this is, this is uh, you know, all of the social media, right? Um, there are all of these complex variables, right? Now they're building digital twins of you uh, through the back ends of these platforms, right? And they are, they are baiting you. Every day is baiting. Every day, this is like the supreme behaviorist toolkit, the supreme, supreme Skinner box, right? But we've agreed to be in it. I mean, that's, so, you know, I would say the really, you know, and, you know, I'll be honest, the things that happened to me over on that Substack were pretty unpleasant. And I think they continue to be pretty unpleasant because people are building their identities in opposition, polarized opposition to what they think I represent. And that's, that never feels good. But what happened is, is that those people are caught in the web of response behavior tracking reinforcement, right? And and these things run, they're outrage machines. I mean, I'm not the first person to say that, but they're, they're emotional outrage machines. And the more outrage there is, the more eyeballs, the more clicks, and uh, it amplifies it and escalates it in really, really dire ways. So imagine that they're feeding you bait and then how you respond to the bait, whether you take it and run with it or you ignore it or whatever, is all built in. And what they're saying is, I mean, what did uh, McLuhan say? The, the medium is the message. Right? It doesn't actually matter what the message is. It's the delivery mechanism that matters. The medium is the message. That's what they're saying. The responses to the information are more important than the information. That's it. That's what he said. So I think that is what we need to understand. And for me, this really hits home because, you know, one of the colleagues of uh, 
Kevin Wareback, which I think I forgot to include. Okay, so Wharton, uh, Wharton Business School, they've got uh, the, their Wharton Neuroscience Initiative. Okay, you can see there. So this is, you know, University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, for anyone watching, you know, I have, I have a master's in historic preservation or yeah, uh, from Penn. So it's my alma mater, right? I, it's the largest private employer in the city of Philadelphia. Um, and so this is my backyard. This is what I'm taking to task. And so they're focused, this is the business school focused on neuroscience. And they're talking about better business through brain science. And they're really working on neuroeconomics. Um, and that's important to understand because that's connected to blockchain. And one of the individuals who's working on that, his name is Michael Platt. And you can see he cross posts with um, marketing, psychology, and neuroscience. And he operates out of Huntsman Hall uh, on Walnut Street. And that's the Wharton, one of the Wharton buildings. They have several. And uh, it was uh, funded by John Huntsman uh, of Utah. And they made their fortune uh, in uh, chemicals and styrofoam. So uh, that tells you a bit about that. And then uh, the overview about his lab, uh, it's he works on the brain's decision-making processes. Uh, and he has these various appointments and some of his uh, videos are the, the science of neuroeconomics and, and sort of the father of neuroeconomics is Paul Glimpshire. I'm going to talk about him a little bit later, um, but the, the neuroeconomics of innovation and the science of friendship. Um, and so they're keeping track of all of this information. Um, Again, not to make good business, right? But to drive people towards the omega point, to drive people towards hive mind consciousness, to drive people into forsaking their identity um, towards the collective. And I think what what I find really staggering is that um, within these substacks, people who at the beginning of the lockdowns were just freedom, 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 and agency have chosen to retreat into like really reductive um, bitter communities that are, are point fingers outward and double down inward. And so they've actually created their own collectives. They're so anti-collective and yet they've created their own digital collectives so such that they're so siloed, they actually are losing touch with um, any reality that is not digitally mediated, unfortunately. I mean, that's, and I, I'm not going to say that's every single person who's in these spaces, but a lot. The tendency is towards uh, collectivist uh, groupthink now, I would say. Uh, and, and it's going to become more so as I think we will see, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but the, um, you know, with uh, with RFK Jr.'s presidential run, uh, you know, he will be framed as the health freedom candidate, right? And so all of that, the intensity of the anointed thought leaders uh, around that campaign and that idea is going to intensify. And so, you know, it will be quite interesting to see the quote unquote health freedom community and how they react to that. Do they fall totally into groupthink, um, you know, as seemed to be the case on the Substack experience? Or, I mean, not exclusively, again, handfuls of people standing out, but for the large part, either people disengaged or uh, reinforcing the influencer's state of view. I think we need to see who are these appointed influencers and how did they get to the places, the positions they hold, especially often since they come from backgrounds that are not like me, a mom sitting at a kitchen table, but very deeply embedded in the structure themselves. And, and we're being sold, uh, you know, a uh, a story, right? A story about, oh, they've woken up and it's how good is it that we have the experts now who can see the error of their past ways and uh, know the ins and outs as an insider and, and bring their knowledge into the system. That's the story. I would say for the most part in my experience, 
experience and activism that the story of the uh, uh, change of heart uh, is to be questioned sort of at, at all, a lot. We need to sort of question that. So, uh, you know, and I'm just going to go over here to the neuroeconomics map. So I mentioned uh, Wharton and, and, you know, Penn has cognitive science. So we have our own health economics divisions and they interface with Wharton. So health economics and uh, a while back and I had a talk with Cliff about the, the outside in robot and, uh, you know, had a lot of good discussions about uh, the, the E.O. Wilson and eusociality and the social insects and how this all fit together. Uh, but so this is from my bigger descent map. And I'll just point out, so Ball Glimpshire, uh, this was from a talk that was given at uh, this thing called the Felicities Center, Felicities Center, housed in the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. And, you know, again, it's really hitting home to me the importance of archetypes and uh, Freudian and Jungian psychology and identity to this because the steering has to happen through telling people stories, uh, identifying people as archetypes and then tell, steering them through story. Uh, so that's really important. And uh, Glimpscher, he, he was, I think, one of Penn's first uh, cognitive neuroscience uh, PhDs. Uh, he attended Dalton School so that there's like the connection to, I mean, I'm not saying, I don't know that he was uh, necessarily taught by Jeffrey Epstein, but it was a similar uh, time frame. So there's that overlap of at least that sphere of influence. And so he, his focus was down here, this neuroeconomics and decision making, what people ought to do. And in this talk at the Philosophy Center, he talked about what he wanted was a generalized neural theory of human behavior. And I think that's actually what they're, they're, uh, developing. They're developing a, a neural theory of human behavior by looking at the back end of these social media platforms and developing a way to uh, energetically or through frequency or through uh, energetic signaling or, you know, the social rules as represented by clicks and likes and engagement um, to do this uh, programming of behavior, to literally program people like ants. So the collectivists, I will just say it again, uh, they use the polarity of capitalism versus socialism to drive the narrative, right? It's it's not one is the winner, one is the right one, and one is the wrong one. It is that they need each other to drive the polarity. That's exactly what's happening. The collectivist outlook is the collectivism of the the social insects and the slime mold. That and and then the, that collectivism segues towards the omega point and the unified consciousness, the unification, unity. Think of unity video games, right? Unity. Um, it, it's it's creating this uh, global superorganism. The, the human energy group is here. So cooperation, uh, cooperation and evolution this, is this eusociality. Um, I would say the substacks, what I saw um, in my experience uh, that there was a, a, a level of programming of the quote unquote community uh, and, and the way that there, the community was discussed, like, oh, good community, you did good behaviors, this sort of thing. Um, and there was a framing of cooperation. So I think in the polarizing narrative that my clip was introduced into, there was this idea of um, the, the there will be a rallying point uh, around uh, to address this issue, we will all cooperate to neutralize the problem. And I, I was introduced as the problem. Now, again, I did not go seeking this. This is something that happened totally independent of me. And I was only alerted to it because I had someone happen to see it on this post. Uh, you know, I was not uh, a, an active participant until I was like, oh, well, let me go see what's going on here. But there was a, a there, there was a sense of camaraderie and cooperation towards uh, 
addressing a, th- a, pers- a, a something that had been ad- identified, I think, if not, not a physical threat, but a psychic threat, a threat to the identity of the collective in the space that had to be targeted. And that that's what I experienced um, in the two days that, you know, it was there. Initially, like th- the first day was disengagement. And then the second day uh, was more engagement. And then when I removed myself, then all hell broke loose and they could just do whatever they wanted because the, you know, the threat had been neutralized. So they, they felt. So this neuroeconomics idea is also central to free market economics um, because what they want is they're after the decision making. And I've talked about this some in my uh, the series that I was working on with Jeff Yass and Susquehanna International Group uh, and poker, the importance of poker is that the decision theory is what's being trained on the back, not just to manage us uh, as a unified substrate slime mold, but to train the AI. So, so the, the neuroeconomics within the context of free market economics, no, no, I see someone's going communitarianism again. Don't put the isms on it because essentially the isms are just putting you in a box. Um, again, they're going to give you a story. <laughs> Think for yourself. Who gave you that? Did you come up with that idea of it's a this or a that? It's a technocracy. It's a communitarian. Maybe it's both and, and, and I've talked about this in the past, uh, elephants, right? There's, yeah, you may be grabbing onto, uh, got your hands on the butt end of the elephant thinking, oh, this is it. This is it. But there's a whole other elephant. And, and as long as they keep you stuck on one thing saying, oh, let me pat you on the back. Yeah, you're in the community and we think this. This is the thing that we think. Then you, then you've, you've lost it. You, you you know, you're, you're going to stuck. You're going to be stuck on the butt end of the elephant. You're not going to even know there's a trunk on the other side. So just be very wary. This is my whole thing. Like, don't go with group think. If someone's giving you an idea, sure, look at it, explore it. You don't have to dismiss it out of hand, but understand that it's one of a constellation of other aspects. And then in order to actually have your own thought about it, you have to explore a lot of the other aspects and then decide uh, if like where that fits in, how much that resonates with you, or maybe you have a totally different idea. So, um, okay, so then we've got Paul Glimpscher and neuroeconomics and free markets. Uh, and then the next part of the same map, because I couldn't fit it all together. So we, we have E.O. Wilson, uh, who is Paul Glimpscher's hero, the Ant-Man. He was studying youth sociality. Uh, youth sociality was a topic that was uh, being uh, funded by Jeffrey Epstein uh, and Martin Nowak, who, who worked with E.O. Wilson uh, at Harvard. And they were, it was like mathematics and biology and game theory. So there, there you've got like the Eric Weinsteins of the world who are working on this evolutionary biology and looking to wed econophysics and biophysics and social physics together. So, so that's where that fits in. And youth sociality research was being funded by something called the John Templeton Foundation. Now, the Templeton Foundation, I did a whole like two hour site visit because guess what? It's outside of Philadelphia. A lot of this stuff is here. So, you know, before anybody wants to slam me for doing my research, like I'm actually clearing out the stalls of a lot of shit here in Philadelphia, right? I'm doing my work to show what's what's here in my backyard and then questioning it and saying, let's look at this more closely. What is if we look at this closely, will it tell us new stories about what's actually going on? Because I'd like to know beyond Steffers and maybe a couple other people out there who is talking about youth sociality. Who is talking? Have you ever seen anyone talk about that? Right. Uh, very small numbers of people are, you know, I know uh, Sebs has has been talking about complexity theory and emergence. So a few, there's a handful, but not many. Right. And, and I feel like this is a much more because this this actually isn't super polarizing. There isn't someone who goes, well, darn it. I love ants. 
I mean, I'm not saying you should hate ants, but like there aren't people who are super invested in ant culture that would say, yeah, I totally think that the next generation be trained should be trained to be ants, right? But if you pick another ism, then immediately the ism that is opposite your ism is going to fight you about it. They're like, nope, it's my ism. Nope, it's myocracy. No, it's my ism, right? But if you if you said something like, oh, have we thought about maybe it's an ant computer? Maybe this is what's going on. Look, I have all of this information about these banking interests and these biologists and these mathematicians and these business people, maybe it's ants. And, and, then, and then you could try that lens on and go, huh. Now, I'm not saying it's only you sociality either, but like when you get that lens, you can look at a lot of things you've been looking at for a while and things start to become clearer into more focus. So then the other thing about the Templeton, <coughs> so you've got the Templeton Foundation here. And um, uh, <coughs> remember, he was funding you sociality. They worked very closely with the Fetzer Institute. Uh, and uh, John Fetzer was the guy working in uh, spiritualism and contemplativeness and mindfulness. Now, they've both since passed, but they have a bunch of money. Uh, John Templeton created mutual funds, and he was knighted by the queen and moved to the Bahamas. Uh, he and the Fetzer Institute have a lot of money, throwing it at uh, things like uh, theoretical physics and religion and genius and free market economics, right? So they're about using the market to refine us into the space. Um, and so Templeton was funding something at Chapman University, which I believe in, is in California, uh, a brain institute, also with money from Fetzer. And they were paying this guy in 2017, Yuri Maoz, M-A-O-Z, who is a computational neuroscientist uh, who is focused on morality and decision-making. And Chapman also in 2019 hosted a conference on the neuros on neuroscience and free will. And so the thing about that that's really important to understand about the computate, uh, the neuroscience and free will is what they, they came up with something called the readiness potential. And so using these very sophisticated devices, what they found was that before you actually did something, um, you know, moved your hand or, you know, picked up the cup or whatever, there's a tiny signal in your brain, just like a certain amount of time in advance before you actually did it. So it was like it was arising in consciousness before you were even aware of it, before it was actionable. And this idea of ready potential is something like you can imagine if you wanted to rule the world and, uh, you know, in, in, in a totalitarian way that was kind of uh, quiet, you know, you would um, you would develop this stuff, right? You would want to get in between. What if I can get in between uh, the idea where it's a, a concept of some, doing something is arising in consciousness, but I can insert my nanotechnology to steer you towards something I want you to do instead, that is, that's mind control. That's like the premier level of mind control. And I think that's what they're after. Now, I'm not saying that they could definitely do that, but Fetzer is also studying um, Stuart Hameroff, uh, funding Stuart Hameroff at the uh, University of Arizona with Roger Penrose, and they're working in consciousness. And way back in 1987, uh, Stuart Hameroff wrote a book called The Ultimate Computing, Biomolecular Consciousness and Nanotechnology. 1987, guys. I mean, look, look at that, 1987. So we're we're really behind the ball. We're, we 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 don't even know what's what's going on. And then I will point out that like if you were trying to get into uh, controlling free will, not just through you know whatever central bank digital currency, but really at a very sophisticated level. Also at Chapman University is this guy Tom Bell. And Tom Bell is a lawyer, and I know of Tom Bell because he was a presenter at the March uh, 2022 uh, conference in Provo, Utah, the Mormon Transhumanist Conference. 
Um, and we went and we attended and he, he, he was remote in because he was setting up charter cities in the Caribbean. Uh, but he was a lawyer who was working on quote unquote special jurisdictions, which would be these geofenced areas and, uh, and, and on internet law. And he had actually developed shopping carts of open source law for smart contracts for special exception zones. So they were, if you wanted to control this, you would start setting up all sorts of like overlays of uh, special districts and smart contracts for new legal infrastructure. So, you know, I think that is very concerning. And then on the other hand of this map I have, I, I often talk about uh, Ocean Protocol, uh, which is this uh, marketplace for impact data uh, to train AI for machine learning. And so they, they put the, the data in a box and they, they secure it, quote unquote, but people can pay to access it to run computations on. And the gentleman who was behind that, it came out of this thing, uh, Big Chain DB, which was connected to Jim Rutt. Uh, but Trent McConaughey of Ocean Protocol, you know, he actually has been giving these talks about quote unquote intergalactic travel. And I know like the whole idea of space is very controversial, but even if you imagine that this ends up being some sort of matrix like scenario where our physical body is turned into some sort of, put in some sort of pod thing, and then we project our consciousness outward into some digital space. Like, I think it's worth note noting that he was about, uh, uh, blockchain mind files and, and actualizing yourself, doing self-actualization through what's called tokenomics or token engineering. And again, this is something that very few people are talking about token engineering. And it's really, really important um, because this will be guiding the quote unquote commons. And later on, I'm going to show a clip about energy systems and things from RFK Jr. Uh, but he frames sort of re-changing up the energy field. And again, I'm, I'm saying this not as any kind of fan of, of big oil and not knowing that knowing that they're a core player in all of this. But the, the, the goal is to get it all into a circuit based system so that they can use blockchain and smart contracts to develop the Omega point to develop uh, through our digital identities and our smart meters and our devices and our, you know, Internet of Bio Nano things to create a, a this global superorganism that will happen through the energy grid. Right. So as much as I'm, I'm not a big oil fan, either. I also have a lot of skepticism around uh, these new innovations in energy markets. And, and that's that's sort of the focus of this talk from 2012 that he gave. But the, the, the exchange of the tokens as a signal, as an electrical signal, whether that is a digital currency, whether that is a digital vote, whether that is a digital communication, is all part of the circuitry of the token engineering of the quote unquote commons. And that is how Trent McConaughey says that you will self-actualize. You will become the most you of you into this. And so that's, um, I think, a really important understanding is if they get a lock on uh, the pot readiness potential and the smart contracts and the spirituality and the token engineering, and it's linked, it's really about turning you into a social insect. Um, I think in some ways that that, is, it, that seems to be what's going on um, in uh, in this space. So, okay, so let me just see. I Somehow I've, I think I've, I've lost my sidebar. Uh, let me see. Oh gosh, I'm gonna have to go, go back. Okay, well, here, here we go. So, uh, okay, so anyway, so just going back to the paper here, they're saying the, the nature of a person's thought response uh, to external information is more important than the information. The medium is the message, right? And that is what's happening on your blockchain mind file and your goal-driven ledger. And that is what is being set up in these digital platforms, including the sub stacks, I believe. Um, 
So here, think about if we're talking about ants, they're talking about persuasion variables. So how do you get people to do what you want and change their behavior? Uh, and the, they're looking for cues. So look, using social rules to drive behavior in certain patterns, all right? Um, the, um, the peripherals, those will be things that have, that don't require a lot of effort. They don't stick, they're not very sticky, but they don't require a lot of effort. And I would say, Probably most people who are engaging in click and scroll online through, you know, whatever, your TikTok or your Instagram or whatever, you're, uh, you're kind of doing it on autopilot. They're simple cues. You're like, oh, I always like things that are like that. And you're not really deeply engaged in it. You know, and this is what I've seen because I keep trying to insist on people to do their own work, like participate meaningfully with my content. Go if you see something you don't understand, go do a little look, look around for it first and then come back um, and, and then let's build something together rather than you simply going on autopilot. But I think probably 97 percent of people who are engaged in social media are the majority of their time operating from the peripheral standpoint. They're just zoned out. Right. So, and they know this, this is part of the game. When Kevin Werbach says there's a game, uh, they, the, the rules are unexpected, so the way to win is to make the rules, they know that. They're the people behind coding, coding the algorithms and they're the ones who are managing the game. Okay, so then it goes on to say, attitudes shaped by the central route have different consequences and properties than those shaped by the peripheral. So we've talked about that. Central route processes tend to be more stable over time, resistant to counter arguments, and likely to guide and bias uh, pro uh, thinking in a pro-attitudinal way, and perhaps of greatest importance lead to atti attitude consistent behavior. So what they're saying is if you can get people actually engaged and change their idea and, and they're actually thinking about it and they've internalized it because they believe it, then they're less likely to be shifted off that uh, position later. And so what I'm saying is rather than trying to allow someone else get getting access to your central route, right, you claim access to your central route. So many people out there about their sovereignty and yet they're literally spinning in circles in digital gardens, digital sandboxes. You own your central route, right? Because that's what drives me. I don't really care what people over on Celia Farber's Truth Barrier Substack think about me. Because I know me, like they don't know me. They're, they're, they, they're trying to create some sort of uh, really sad little replica over me, of, of, of me over there, which is the, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a scarecrow. It's something that they need to use to reinforce their own identities or their own uh, uh, advances, their own uh, agendas that they're trying to put forward. But it's not me. I know me. I know me and I'm, so I'm not seeking their tokens. I'm not seeking to play in their game because I know that that's a game that isn't my game. It isn't a game that I'm gonna have any agency in. And so, so this is my, my recommendation is stay in the center place as much as possible. Um, and it says, despite the obvious benefits of shaping attitudes through a central route, it's hard. It's typically more difficult to achieve uh, because you it, it requires more demands on the audience, right? Um, you so really a lot of people like to do the peripherals because getting people to actually do the hard work and do meaningful behavior change is difficult and it's difficult to do that at scale you might be able to do that with a few people but doing it at scale is difficult it's probably not going to be happening on social media i think social media is mostly the peripheral um so later it says while peripheral approaches can be powerful in the short term especially when an immediate change is all that is required. The problem is that over time, emotions dissipate. People's feelings about sources can change
change and cues can become dissociated from the message. Uh, in combination, these factors can undermine the basis of a weaker natured attitude shaped by the peripheral route. So that is the artificial pheromone. That is, you have to keep reintroducing, keep reintroducing, keep reintroducing. And, and I'm going to see here, okay, I'm going to have to just go back to Kumu for a second and reopen up. Okay. So I'm going to go to uh, neuroeconomics again. Wait a minute. How do I get in there? Okay, I'd like to play a clip. Uh, oh, Elizabeth, yeah, I think it's around Elizabeth's clip. Let me see. Oh, Sandy Pentland. I, I wanna play a clip for you if I can find it. Let me put in, I didn't plan this one in advance, but I think it's really, it's, I played it before and it's, it's important. Okay, so here we go. Uh, what people ought to do, slime mold, <laughs> let me see, uh, fitness landscapes, it's going to take me a second, uh, oh, the oxytocin prescribed trust, this is it, I'm pretty sure this is it, okay, so here, what they're talking about, this was, a, it was like an hour-long presentation, again, this is at the Felicity Center, it's about neuroeconomics, it has people from JP Morgan, people from Harvard, Paul Glimpscher, the neuroeconomics guy, um, uh, economists, and they're talking about all of this behavior change. How can we make behavior change happen, right? And um, what one of them is saying is that you can use uh, oxytocin, like because all of these digital things, clicks and likes and whatever are actually, they're digital signals that affect us, our biochemistry, right? They actually affect us internally through how, if, if depending on, I guess, the importance that we place on these things. And, and I, I will admit that in the past, I cared more. But as I've come to understand the system, uh, I've, I care, I'm, I, I'm above it, kind of. I mean, not that I don't care about it anymore, but I can see it for what it is and I don't take it so personally. I'm, I'm above the emotional triggering. I mean, not totally, but it's I'm able to see it for what it is. So they're talking about using oxytocin to uh, instill trust in people. And and if what you, you listen to this and what they're saying is that, well, that's all very well and good, but how is that actionable? What are we gonna have people dosing themselves with oxytocin like every couple Couple hours because it wears off. And what I realized after I listened to this, because this is an old lecture, this is at least from like 2007, is that it's what they're talking about is individual communication technology. Like our, our uh, devices, our wearables, our smartwatches, our tablets are dosing us. They are a prescription. It is a social prescription that's happening. And it's not just oxytocin. I think that they could probably create through stigmergy and narrative different kinds of biochemical behaviors in our body, not necessarily through frequency, although I'm not saying that that couldn't also be the case, but merely from our emotional and cognitive response to that. So here, let me let me play this. Okay. So we should get back to the two brain for the two people, whatever, the two people inside your head debate at some point. Okay. Um, but for instance, we did a study where we, we had people learn through trial and error to trust somebody or not trust somebody. So somebody's going to reward you, they're not going to reward you. Um, if you trust them in, a, in an economic exchange. And prior to the, them doing this, we then gave them a little vignette. This person is basically a good guy, nothing to do with economic behavior, but you know, kind of helps his friends out, that kind of thing, works for Teach for America. Um, you know, this guy's kind of sleazy, you know, this guy's kind of average. 
Now, I'm just going to pause this for a second, and I will I will give a little bit of a reflection on, again, my experience on this substack. So, um, again, the clip in, in question that was presented, and yet, um, actually, it was kind of crazy. I mean, maybe that's not a good word. It was, it was surprising to me. It was surprising to me that... Um, I don't know, this woman keeps like stirring the pot. So like every day is a new post about this thing. I guess she's getting a lot of mileage out of it. Um, but she said that when she posted the clip of mine, uh, which was an 11 minute clip, it wasn't one of my three hour clips, uh, that she hadn't actually watched the video. So she she took a comment that someone had made on one of her posts and sort of verbatim sort of implied that I had said these things and put it up, but, but didn't watch the clip herself. Um, so she... <laughs> I mean, this is kind of the con the quality of the content that you're getting on social media these days uh, is that someone who didn't even take the time to listen to the content that they were sharing, were sharing, a, it was like how meta, right? They're making a blog post out of a comment of a clip that they didn't watch. And then they're sort of through this sort of uh, backhandedness implying the untrustworthiness of this or engaging in a, a sort of a false uh, discourse about the nature of it, knowing that like, again, three or four days later, she admits she hadn't even watched the clip, uh, but opening the door to essentially um, create a, uh, a hive action that would be like, here is a threat uh, to the collective understanding um, as we understand it here in this digital sandbox closed wall garden of how we do things here and um you know this is not a trustworthy person right so you've got on the one hand uh yes oh this person here this is my candidate this is the candidate i believe is the right person this is a good person and i will sort of advance this with the understanding that this is a, an approvable person and this is someone now i don't know this person i actually haven't meaningfully engaged with the material but i'm pretty sure they're not trustworthy and then here's an average so i think this to me rings very very true in understanding this woman is from harvard that these these studies of decision theory and trust and the cognitive neuroscience go back decades and decades and decades so i'll just keep going what we see when we do this is when you're working with the good guy, you don't use the part of your brain that seems to be responding to trial and error feedback that you're getting through these economic transactions. Okay, you use another learning and memory system. That's one learning and memory system. You use another learning and memory system when the guy is good to help you guide your choices. And okay, so I would say too, and again, within the substack culture, and this is the grouping of them, right, sitting around the table, the economist, the JP Morgan guy, the psychologist analyst and the neuroeconomist. Um, so they're saying, okay, so you use one part of your brain when you understand that someone is trustable and you use another part of your brain when the person isn't trustable, right? And so what I would say is if, now surely there are some people who sample a lot of digital media outlets just to kind of get a sense of the landscape and they don't get emotionally attached uh, they're really keeping things at a higher level and just seeing what's going on, like in a lot of different uh, areas, right? Because they like to sort of see uh, where people, where the the what are the stories that are popping off in the in the digital realm so that they can that's something that they like to do and you know i get that i would say there's another whole cohort of people who attach themselves onto particular communities and then their identity becomes reinforced with that and that the people in those communities and the influencer at the top of that community is trustable right so what she's saying here is like you have to be careful because someone that you identify as trustable uh, and you're working with them in a transaction 
it could turn out that actually later there's something else going on, but you're, you're working in a different part of your brain. You're, you're less cautious or skeptical. So I think the idea that we've seen in the quote unquote resistance throughout is that there've been people who've shown up to say like, believe me, be part of my group. Uh, we will provide safety. A lot of times there's this polarization of like fear porn and then safety offering in community to sort of drive people into that. And then once you're in that space of these are the people I trust, and I would say, you know, again, I've had this lived experience where there are people that, uh, you know, I, 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 I trusted and then it turns out things happened later that I was like, oh, maybe that's not what I thought was going on. I thought one thing was going on and then there was something else and, and, and then you've got to sort things out later. But there is, they know, you, you can see in this room, this, this is at least probably a 10, 15 year old clip that they want they, the power of getting someone to trust you in there. And what is so ironic is that in this particular thing, one of the major funders was uh, Bernie Mac, uh, no, Bernie Madoff, sorry, Bernie Madoff. And like when his Ponzi scheme went down, the whole thing collapsed. And then I think it reconstituted later as something else. But like, so they're sitting here and actually Bernie Madoff is in the room near the other podium. And, and they're talking about like being the potential to be misled by someone that you're trusting. And, and literally like the clock is ticking. I think a year later, the whole thing exploded for them. So it's kind of interesting. And your choices don't change as much with a good guy, even though they're all reporting you in the same to the same degree. Okay, so you can say, well, maybe we would have seen that in behavior, and we did. Okay, but we know something about how those brain systems work and what kind of information they encode and what kind of information um, they use when they're being, you know, when they're driving behavior versus another memory system's driving behavior. This now tells us something. Again, notice the languaging driving behavior. They know what drives behavior. That's going back again to the 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 uh, you know the uh, elaboration likelihood model of persuasion. They know this is a science. This isn't just a little thing. This is a, a science from the most elite universities who were involved in all of the Cold War uh, policy and game theory all the way along, right? And we have no idea. Like, I mean, raise your hand. I was trying to have a conversation about simulation modeling uh, in that substack, and literally the only person who would engage pretty much said, ah, too complicated. No one's gonna know that, too hard. I think I should just tell you, don't trust the mainstream media and that's enough. And I'm like, if you don't realize they've gamed out all the options and how they're doing it, like you're you're a mark. You're a mark in this game. They know how to do it. And 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 to say that you're not going to take the time to understand the game is pretty much just to give in to the game and know that you're the mark in the game. I mean, if you're going to do that, I would say you should probably absent yourself from the game if you're not wanting to actually understand how it's played about the psychology that we wouldn't have known otherwise. We can take everything we know about those brain systems now and use that to understand why it is when it's a good guy, it doesn't bother you so much that he cheats you. Um, you know, and that's going to now go and inform our psychological model of how this could work. So that's just an example of how it is seeing something in the brain might then change your psychological model because we're bringing everything we know about the brain science to that psychological model in that case. And ultimately, we care about what people do. We care about that level of description. We care about what people do. And so what I would also say is, and it's important to keep this in mind, is what's coming uh, with the misinformation and the pre-bunking, because I would say, it seems to me, and I'm not saying that this person did it uh, knowingly, but there is a push to... Uh, towards curating reality, right? Towards, I mean, you can hear it sort of 
you know, coming out of her mouth. We, we need to, there's two groups. There's trustworthy information, trustworthy people, and untrustworthy information, untrustworthy people. And the world is being broken up. There's so much information flowing uh, and that we don't have discernment. So you outsource your discernment to other people who guide you and tell you what's okay and what's not okay. Only, you know, in the end that they could be telling you things that would be not to your advantage because, because, you know, they know how to use that too. Um, but yeah, so so curated reality and misinformation and pre-bunking and debunking are all part of this story as well because they want to drive certain behaviors. Right, but knowing this other level of description adds information to this level of description. Well, one of the things in the paper is that if you give somebody oxytocin, they become more trustful. So what are you going to do? If you want to cheat them, you give them oxytocin and then have them trust you and take their money? Okay, so... Look, they're laughing because they know that this is what they're doing, right? We're being administered oxytocin through our devices and through our social media feeds. That's what it is. So the, the social media feeds are telling you who to trust and who not to trust. And eventually it's going to be on blockchain. So it's like quite fascinating to me as someone who like, I mean, let me just, let me just show you my, I mean, uh, like my maps, you know, like these are the maps that I make. You know, like I make these huge maps with all of this information, you know, and, and share them freely with all of these videos and lectures and, you know, essentially like this is a whole college course, right, in, 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 in this. But I, I would be, and these are all facts, right? These are all primary source documents. Like I'm being framed as the untrustworthy source, right? Um, because if you actually look at all of the information and sort of synthesize it for yourself, you end up thinking in non-traditional ways. You end up thinking outside of the digital walled garden, outside of the sandbox, and then the people in the sandbox start throwing sand at you because they're really pissed that you got out of the sandbox, you know? But but this is where this is where it's at, that that who gets labeled as trustworthy and untrustworthy, and soon it will be on blockchain. I mean, soon, as much as that is is going on, that this is, a, like, they're running their own social credit scoring systems. They don't understand it as that because they want to understand it as China. But what what's happening in these, um, you know, in these spaces, uh, let me see. Uh, I just want to go back. I mean, I've done so much work. And again, I did, I did it for myself. I'm not doing this because... I want brownie points from a Substack influencer, right? I'm not doing this. I didn't map all of Dallas because, uh, you know, I, I thought someone was going to pay me and, and get a, a nice subscription to my channel. That's not why I did it. I did it because probably I'm a little OCD and I have a good friend in Dallas and she's also super uh, on top of things and we like to collaborate. And so, and, and then it's a fascinating story. Once you get into it and you start seeing all of the sub stories in here, like each of the, sort of these little pivot things is a sub story. And, and I'm driven by that because that's how my mind works and that's what my social priorities are, not to get uh, brownie points under somebody else's thing. But clearly there's a whole group of people who like to do that stuff, right? <laughs> Yeah, Lynn says I'm I'm a master quilter. Yeah, I do quilting, right? Like this is an information quilt. Um, but in making the quilt, um, I learned things, right? And I learned things not, and I it shaped my ideas not because somebody told me, but because I could go in and I could, you know, I could look at Frank Molina, right? I could go in and I could say, oh, Frank, what do you have going on here? And you and Roger and Alan and you know, uh, you know, Christine over here and Gislaine and oh, it's not just about you know trafficking 
cooking or tawdry things. Maybe it's about emergence and other stuff. And maybe it goes over here with space development and, you know, regenerative things with Julian Huxley. And you can see it all lay out. And again, not everybody's mind, you know, this is maybe not a turn on for a lot of people. <laughs> but for me, it was fascinating because guess what? I got to go, right? I got to go and stand outside of James Tour's uh, Universal Matter office and, um, see, you know, see at least what the mailing address is where the dusty coffee machine was for the people who are trying to build the nano cars and the nanotechnology. And um, so I think it's really interesting. So anyway, I'm just going to go back to the video, but uh, just talking about the this idea of um, uh, the trustworthiness, right? Like what is your measure of trustworthiness? And I, I think increasingly in the uh, in these spaces uh, that have been created, and again, especially for the resistance, um, as a test bed to model the resistance, right? To, to model what an acceptable resistance looks like. An acceptable resistance doesn't look like this. An acceptable re resistance doesn't look like you're going, wait a minute, my friend says that there's a bioeducational technology center over there in, in Dallas and being built on this, you know, old Exxon campus. And we go walk around and we see all the creek and the crayfish and the cypress trees and stuff. And like, what's really going on? That's not an acceptable resistance. An acceptable resistance is one where everybody is in the ant computer reinforcing the, uh, the storylines and the narratives that are handed to them. And, you know, I, I just, I'm not saying this to be mean, but I'm saying this based on my own direct experience about what has has happened over the last two years that that's that's how it goes so all right i mean what, uh, what so the it seems like the finding doesn't lead you into a place where you have a, a solution to the issue so I mean, oxytocin you know, yes increases uh, bonding of the mother and the child increases trust it does a lot of nice things and a lot of opioids do a lot of nice things as we were recently <laughs> finding out but what's how does that help us in terms of determining the person's affecting the person's economic behavior uh, which is what neuroeconomics hopefully will one day do no I don't know, that's not my angle. Yeah, I don't know, that's <laughs> a good um, I, I, There's actually an answer to that. They've shown, economic studies have shown that societies, cultures where the trust level is high do much better in terms of everybody else's welfare. Yeah. No, but what are you yeah, going to do? That's, Give that's, everybody, I don't think that's a question. No, you're not going to, what are you going to do? Give them the hormone? What are you going to do? Give them the hormone, right? What are you going to do to get the trusts? Give them the hormone. Well, this is happening. This is how it's going to happen through uh, through the devices. For culture, but you know the biological effects yes. of cultural change make. Right, but economics has to do more with culture than the, the biology of an individual. Well, at that particular question. And I would say he's probably inaccurate with that because what's happening now is the convergence of those three things. And that's something that um, Glimpsher talked about, actually. Let me see. Um, uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. I want to mention, so Glimpsher. So one of the things that Glimpsher was talking about, why he was such a fan of uh, E.O. Wilson, the ant guy, was this idea of consilience, uh, the convergence of evidence from independent sources. And it was bringing together the social sciences, 
this consilience and co consilience idea, the consilience project, bringing together the physical sciences and the social sciences. That's what Paul Glimpscher was af after in trying to get this uh, generalized neural theory of behavior. And that's what they're bringing. Like when, when Eric Weinstein talks about combining biophysics and econophysics and social physics, that's what it is. It is consilience. So again, 10, 15 years out, they're moving in that direction. They're trying to get that point that you could use economics to, to change people's biology. And I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later uh, in the context of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. But when you hear him talk, his, his uh, economic focus, and it's, it's, it's somewhat incongruent because he's running, my understanding is, as a Democrat, uh, but he's framing it as free market economics is his core is uh, the free free market is is and so uh, free market economics and he's posing that against crony capitalism. But I would say, especially because RFK Jr.'s uh, positionality, other than being a lawyer in the, the climate environmental movement, uh, was uh, being this managing partner for uh, Vantage Point Capital Partners, which is deeply invested in energy grids. So this clip is going to be about energy grids and uh, free markets. And so when you understand energy and signaling, uh, and you understand that the, the goal of the ant computer was to bring together the social sciences with the physical sciences, and that's what they're through with neuroeconomics, is not just to change your economic behaviors, because it kind of sounds silly when you link of it in that way, like, oh, if they just did better economic behaviors, people would have enough money to retire. That's, that's the story they're telling on the front end, but on the back end, the intention of consilience was always to bring together these two divergent things with the wearable, with your bank, with the programmable money, with the internet of things, uh, devices in your home and the, the artificial vision sensors and the smart contract layers to bring about the unity, to bring about the omega point. And, and again, you know, if, you know, if there's anybody out there, you know, if you're listening, who is talking about this, who aren't the people I've already talked about, you know, you know, Steffers or Sebs or Leo or Jason or Lynn or whatever, like this small group of people that we're talking about the ant computer, like, I'd love to know if other people are out there talking about that, because it's darn hard to have this conversation. And I think that's also why I'm not trustworthy, because I'm trying to have conversations that are beyond what the conversations that are allowed. Right. There are only allowable conversations. And that's why the quote unquote health freedom. And I always do D.O.M. for d domination. The freedom community is still stuck where it is, uh, you know, after, you know, two years in the stalled in the same spot. It's by design. It's not because people are incapable or uh, less intelligent or less motivated that they have been contained there for a reason. And the, and the reason is, is, is amplified by the social conditioning of wanting to belong in a group. And, and as the, the pressure has been put on for people to want to belong, um, there's a smaller and smaller number of us, but we're still out there who are like, I'm not conceding to your thing to belong in your group. No, I, I'm going my own way. I, I mean, I'm, I don't have to make you wrong or I don't have to point fingers at you or make you bad, but I'm not conceding me to do you. Like I'm doing it because I'm the path and what motivates me is to find the truth. So, okay, so... Yeah. And, you know, the first five or ten years, you could easily argue we didn't learn a whole lot about the study of cognition from studying the brain. Certainly since then, I think ev almost everyone would disagree with you. Um, and so I think this field's very, very young, and I think we'll start to see where this is going to benefit um, economics and in ways that I don't think we can predict right now. 
Yeah, but the, I think that they actually could predict it. <laughs> I mean, so what she's saying is, you know, this is going to affect things in ways that we don't understand. And I, I think they had it gamed out in advance. I think that's very uh, duplicitous for her to say, like, we just don't even know what's going to happen next. I mean, they maybe not know the specifics, but they knew the trajectory. Um, certainly psychiatry, you know, we can't argue this hasn't had a huge influence on things like psychiatry and other fields. And I think that's going to be true for economics in ways that may be hard for us to answer today. And again, psychiatry, this is happening in the New York City psychiatry, Freud psychiatrics, like not, not it was not a clinic. It's the center of psychoanalysis in New York City, right? That's very significant because this has to do with the characters and the play and archetypes and Maya and the illusion and bringing people along inside constructed narratives. And, and so it's very significant to me that this conversation is happening in the, the New York psychoanalysis center. The oxytocin results really strike. To me, what it means is uh, a behavior as complicated as trust can be reduced to a single hormone, at least to some degree. So that simplification, and I think that is really important to understand, to the pressure to to reduce the com beautiful chaotic complexity of human humanity, of individuals, of social relations, to a button you can press. And I think that's what's coming. That's what's coming with the smart contract layer. And that is what is happening within social media is it's reductive, right? It's, it's, it's reductive and that has to do with the, these, uh, the, the nudges, right? The, the peripherals, that if you can get people into a peripheral route and you can guide people like social insects, all you have to do is program a button. And again, remember that that's what, that's what Paul was after, this generalized neural theory of human behavior right here. This is what he wanted. He wanted to reduce it to one thing and, and find the button that he could get to push and be in charge of that button. So, and, and that's what's happening on these substacks. And that's why the behavior, if you're, you know, I think if maybe you're in them, you, uh, if you, you, you come in and you spend time there, it's like a slow boil and you don't see it for the bizarre nature of what it is. And again, my experience was limited to this one particular group. So, um, you know, I'm more than willing to understand that it's not that community that was created in that particular group is not common throughout. Although, you know, I in talking to Cliff, he's, he's definitely seen similar patterns in other substacks. But this idea of reducing people to that's that's what's needed for the, the, the social computation is that we become ants and we become reduced to these just bags of chemicals, water and chemical bags. That's an amazing scientific finding. finding. And uh, by understanding where all the oxytocin receptors are, we can leverage that to even understand a little bit more about the neural basis of trust. Very important. Just finish for one more second. And um, so all of those are good. And if I can show you that those brain areas are active during some other kind of exchange, I can relate that new behavior to this underlying neural circuit, and that allows me to improve my model of that behavior as well. Okay, so think about that. So the goal, as we know, by you know, listening to uh, Juan Benet and Adam Marblestone and when their discussions of uh, non-surgical BCI, right, non-surgical brain-computer interfaces. Now, that clip was sort of saying it was farther out, this idea of having a non-surgical brain-computer interface was at some distance. Now, it's hard to know what to make of all of this um, because we're not going to be privy to all the information to make a very clear assessment, but the goal is a non-surgical brain computer interface. So imagine, you know, and again, I was talking the last couple days about the pervasive computing 
They're able to get through the blood-brain barrier with nanotechnology, with the nanobots or the neural nanobots and, and, and control things. And then think about what I was saying about the readiness potential, right? And the steering behaviors. If you had a sensor that could, could intervene in the readiness potential between what thought was arising in you and what, and what was actually fulfilled to completion, and you could do that using AI feedback loops and models, and you know, you're incorporating uh, Trent McConaughey of Ocean Protocol's uh, self-actualization through token economics participation, um, that's some scary stuff there, right? That's some really intense stuff, and in that this is all embedded not only in military simulation technology, but also really highly advanced uh, marketing, right? Uh, marketing and marketing that includes uh, programming you through language, uh, neural language processing, programming you through imagery, uh, programming you through story. And, and that these stories now are embedded across domains. That's the transmedia, right? So uh, it's like the cookies, right? All of this idea of the cookies, which is interesting. I don't know, Emily, if you're listening, the whole thing like cookies and sugar <laughs> that in programmable matter, that the cookies follow you. And so you might do something in one space and then it pops up in another, but the story keeps following you. And right now the story is an ad, but imagine in the future, the story is some sort of immersive experience that keeps inviting you back into a, a, a divergent storyline as a social insect participating in human computation. Like it's quite odd, but I wouldn't put it past Glimpsher because again, he's coming out of Penn and Penn has got the health sciences stuff. It has the business sciences. It has the neurosciences. It has the, the ed tech. It has that high level psychology going back to the MK ultra days. Um, it has the, the character labs and the positive psychology and Seligman and, you know, good behaviors and well-beings and all of these things feeding into it. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm going on and on and on, but I'll pause and let's finish this. Does this mean we should make everybody carry nasal inhalers uh, and use them every <laughs> hour? I, I don't know. You have to ask a welfare economist that question, and I'm definitely not a welfare. Okay, so did you hear him say, you'll have to ask a welfare economist? Those are the people who are going to be in charge of the impact finance. Those are the people who would tokenize your food, your SNAP benefits on blockchain. Just think about that. I mean, I'm, you know, think about what would happen if we could expand the central bank digital currency conversation to include this, right? This isn't coming out of, out of uh, the, the, the bank of international settlements. Now, now, I'm not saying that they're not involved, but like by focusing on them to the exclusion of the other things, we're missing out on huge parts of the story, right? That, that are linking the cognitive neuroscience in with the economic behavior into the group optimization. And these are important parts of the story that we shouldn't be missing. Okay, so that's that. Okay, so Thank you for all of listening to me while I'm breaking into all of that. So, okay, so back to the paper. We're talking about central route versus peripheral. Um, you know, it's more difficult to get people to change at the central level. So I'm saying like, be in charge of your own central thing. If you have a peripheral approach, you have to keep replenishing it, right? Uh, if they can be powerful in the short term, uh, when an immediate change is required, but the emotion can dissipate. And that's stigmergy. That's the pheromone of the ant computer, that's uh, the digital signal. So think about um, all of the crises that are precipitated throughout media and social media and on the international platform, right? The wars, the, the shootings, uh, the economic crises, the other, the other things um, that this, um, th this state of constant uh, economic upheaval 
is very important to this program because it allows people to be kept in sort of a, a, a just a, a traumatized state. And I think in that traumatized state, you tend to operate on autopilot and you tend to seek safety and like-minded people. And so that needs to be understood within this as well. So, and they have to keep at it, right? Because you do one wave and that's not enough. Like uh, three weeks later, that thing is over. You have to do another wave. So either you have to do a variation on the first uh, tragedy or you have to make up a new one and you have to, you have to keep at that. And then I would say too, um, I mean, the other piece of this is like the emotionality and Lynn and I were talking about this in a, a conversation we we're having, having about the open education resources, but she noticed that someone who was providing testimony to the state legislature, like opened with this very emotionally charged uh, sort of trauma story that wasn't really closely related to the topic at hand and then sort of segued into the topic of what they were talking about, which is unusual because you only get a few minutes unless you're a big wig and then you can maybe get more time, but it, it, they, they were using valuable minutes or valuable seconds to uh, provide this certain framing. But I think what they know is that if you can create uh, an emotionally triggering opening, it probably resets the minds of the people who are your audience into a different state, right? Uh, into the state that they're talking about that, um, a state of, you know, if you are vulnerable, then there's like a caregiving side that's put into that. And I could see that very strongly in the unfolding of what happened to me on the Substack was that the person who had initiated the situation uh, continually emphasized her vulnerability um, and, and in that engaged the audience in sort of a codependency relationship. And so I think if you engage people in that way, you are acting on a peripheral, like again, people want to help people who are in pain or people who, who are in need. And so it, it's moving people into a different psychological space than it would be someone of like a calm detachment of like, let's just look at the facts. Um, it becomes highly charged and in that people become more steerable. Um, okay, so, okay, so when you've got a message, you're, you're trying to change people's behavior. Part of it is about how motivated they are to process the message. And I, you know, I see Jason's like in the chat or whatever, like, I mean, we can, and, and Jason has been very good over time in his community of trying to reach out in a very proactive way and in much more than I have done myself to try to engage people in thinking about the issues that we're talking about, right? And things, not because we want to be the lead influencers, but because we think actually that these topics are important to understand so that people can better navigate what's happening. Um, the reality is, is people are not motivated to hear the message. Now, one, cognitively, the, the message that we're sharing is complicated, and that's why I've been very grateful to people like uh, Eve, who've made the lovely zine, and she's working on a follow-up to, to create a, a more uh, palatable and easily accessed a nice access point for some of these ideas, which isn't my strong suit. And so I think that's awesome. And that's why it's great to have a team of people uh, working around these issues. But time and time again, the, you cannot determine someone's motivation. You can't actually make people be motivated. Uh, people's motivation comes from their internal state. So what motivates me is the, the quest, right? The next thing, making sense making out of information and, and building out an idea, a picture of what this thing is. That's what motivates me. And, and yes, I love you know, being able to engage with that, uh, with, with people whose opinions, I, you know, I share and who have things to offer, um, you know, increasingly over time that pool has shrunk to a small number, but for me, it's not about numbers. It's really about, um, quality and, and the journey itself. So I'm, I'm fine to be the scout and be out 
ahead of things. Um, but many people, their motivation comes from the, the being, belonging, the tribe, the team. And so if what you're posing is, hey, here's some information that might take you out of a journey into a place uh, that you're not emotionally prepared to go, uh, there's no motivation to know that if if their motivation layer is built into the um, staying in their community. So, and again, that's something you can't really change. This idea that somehow I could change my message to fit in in a way that would motivate people who really are just caring to be safe within stories that have been given to them by other people. It's two different groups. It's two different groups. And I'm not saying that those are, they're, you know, less than or not good people, but there's no way I'm going to be able to change them and make them motivated to hear my message. I have a message for people who are motivated to hear and, and that's enough. And so when, when people try to tell me, well, maybe if you posed it this way, it would make it more palatable. I, I don't think that's actually true. I think that the people who are motivated will find the way into the story and the people who are doing everything they can to avoid the story will continue to avoid the story. And again, that is not unlike you know, Ms. Farber, who pulled a, a comment with a clip of my material and used it as the centerpiece of her blog post and yet claimed uh, three blog posts later that she actually hadn't even watched the clip. And and so, again, she was not motivated um, to engage with the material and, and still is not motivated to engage meaningfully with the content of the material offered. Um, it was merely a tool for her to advance uh, her own interests in that, in that space. Okay, uh, so ability. So are can they, are they motivated? And then the other thing is, is it relevant to them? Uh, are these people who like thinking, right? Like I like thinking. Like the people around me also like thinking. We like to talk, call each other up and go, do you know what the thing is? Like I found the thing and what do you think about the thing and whatever. Like we like thinking, not because we don't say like, oh, did you see what so-and-so wrote? We love them, don't we? Yeah, we love them. Like that's a different combination than like, oh my gosh, did you see the, here's a, a 10 minute video about using um, people with complex physical disabilities to use eye gaze tracking to build video games. You know, and 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 that's the thing we like to, because we like to think about thinking. It's our, our motivation isn't like, oh, what is the social currency of what our favorite person put out this week and how can we talk about it like we would talk about a TV show. That's not what we do. I'm not saying, you know, I'm better and they're worse. It's just different. So um, some people like thinking. Uh, are, do you feel responsible for processing the message? A lot of people are like, eh, I don't really care about that. That doesn't feel like that's affecting me at all. Um, I, you know, I, th there's nothing actionable for me or you're offering something, but you don't have a solution. So I really don't want to get involved with that. That just doesn't, you know, I, I only have limited energy. I'm not doing that. Like that, that's, a, that's another, that's an important thing to think about. Um, ability. Ability refers to an individual needing the resources and skills to understand and attend to a message. And, you know, I will admit at this stage, um, I'm going to just get a little tea here. Um, it's, I keep going, right? And and I guess if I were a different person, I would stop and I would I would frame it all out and I would scaffold it for people and I would like bring them, I would have like a nice on-ramp, right? Because the reality is, is like, yeah, like I'm here, not because I'm smarter, be because I've had access to all of these, this different information that has poured into me and that I've organized in a certain way. So it's very clear to me. It's also very hard for me beyond these videos that I provide and the long form writing that I often do and the clips that I provide in my channel um, to bring people up to that. They actually, it's kind of a, high, a heavy lift. And I will admit that it's a heavy lift to to want to fall, you know, join into this discussion. Um, so so, yeah, so people have to be pretty motivated and they have to be people who like to think and, it, you know, 
and that sort of thing. It's not, it's not for everybody. Um, not that I'm meaningfully writing to exclude people, but it just isn't for everybody. Um, also, do they have intelligence? Again, I, I don't really think intelligence is super easy way to frame it, but they, they say intelligence. But the time available to engage in the message, okay? The timing is important because people have a small amount of bandwidth. I mean, maybe not small, but fixed. Their amount of bandwidth is fixed and there's been an explosion of uh, information uh, over the past three years on digital media. And so you could spend all day reading other people's things and never getting a darn thing done on the own thing that you're supposed to be working on. And I think that's by design too. And so you you, you lean into the, the, the content creators and into the community to provide your trusted things like, oh, if I needed to know that my community would tell me, and then you end up in the walled garden digital sandbox. Uh, but that's important. Like there's a lot of noise and sifting through the noise is difficult. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. To a, a person's level of actual or perceived knowledge. In other words, an individual is likely to elaborate and respond to more messages when they are aligned to pre-existing knowledge structures. And again, I would say probably Jason will back me on this, but this idea that we, um, if there's a story that you've been told is important, um, let me tell you about a lab leak. Uh, let me tell you about a thing. Like, I don't even know what all the things. Can you want to talk about the train crashes? Do we want to talk about the warehouses being on fire? Like, here's an important story that you're giving. And then you've read up some on that and you feel like you have an engagement with that topic. Um, that's something that, that would fit in that category. If someone's saying like, hey, the ant computer. And, and they're the like one of the only people saying it. It's not going to rise up in consciousness. They'll be like, pfft. I'm not talking about an ant computer. Come on, I've got other stuff to think about. The, all these other people are pulling my attention in this direction, right? And so the the, the relevance, and, and they're, they're, they're not gonna know anything. Like when you come in and you go like, oh, I don't know what use sociality is. And you know, I see, I've seen some things in there about a glossary and stuff and like, on the one hand, can I just say there's Google, right? I don't know anything about these terms until I figure them out for myself. And I didn't start out with a glossary. So what I would say is this goes back to motivation. If there's a word that you see in a thing and you don't know what it means, uh, you can look it up, right? But I think, I think people have been sort of framed, given a frame that they're disempowered, that they're disempowered and waiting for someone else to tell them the thing. Because actually, in a glossary, often there's multiple definitions depending on what message you're trying to convey. Um, you know, if you know, I started with a glossary and I started with some words. And if you were actually trying to sell them on people, you would describe a social impact bond very different than I would describe them, right? And so, again, going back to your central processing, like you have to take charge of your own education about things. So if there's an idea that you don't know, go look it up, right? Like I didn't know any of these things before I started. You know, my focus was education and digital identity and blockchain. And then it's expanded into all these other areas, but I love the expansion. Like I love to go there because to me, that's that what that is my motivating factor. So um, yeah, so they're not gonna like in the stuff we're talking about. They don't have pre-existing knowledge. They don't have pre. They don't have a lot of time. And and largely, I'm people like me are being painted as untrustworthy by the people who are trying to contain the narratives in their own walled gardens. And then, yeah, so they say uh, and, uh, the amount of distraction in the communication environment. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there's uh, a lot of distraction, guys, super lots of distraction. Um, and I think if you have your own internal compass, it's easier to figure out what to pay attention to and what what not, what's not. And yeah, it's distra distracting and noisy by design. Um, the number of message repetitions, right? With the greater amount of repetition, people can comprehend and recall the message. 
No one's repeating our message, guys. Very few people. Very, 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 very few people are repeating the, the stuff that we're trying to talk about and amplifying it. So, um, you know, I, that's a problem because what I, like I said, in the Substack, what I saw was a whole lot of people that seemed to either be in a trance uh, who literally have been turned most of them into social insects. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean that in terms of an intentional programmed way that that is what we are supposed to be. And even as they are fighting and imagining like this threat is this, you know, can be personified as the central bank digital currency or the BIS or, uh, you know, Fauci or who, whoever, it, it, it actually, um, they walked into a, a sandbox that turned them into a social insect and they didn't realize it. Right. And I think that there's still time to back out of it. I don't think it's a permanent situation. Like people could could wake up to being woke up. Right. And then like reclaim their steering wheel and, and, and get on with it. But so on. OK, so these are just the steps that they put. And, and I'll, I'll walk through this quickly. One, uh, consider uh, are the are the intended recipients going to attend to your message or are they going to do the peripheral? Right. So are, which is your your. You're, you're trying to change behavior. You're trying to persuade people. What is your toolbox? Are you going to go for the, the, the brass ring and try to do the more difficult but more long-lasting change, which is the central one? Or are you going to do the quickie but uh, effective one, which is the peripheral? And, and quickie but you know, short-lasting. You, you've got these two choices, central or peripheral. Uh, after you estimate the audience, uh, you, you want to figure out uh, what are going to be your arguments and your cues. Uh, to build into that. How are you going to structure your persuasive message? Um, uh, it says your options could involve developing substantive arguments that can withstand intense scrutiny. That's for the central. Or components that are simple cues, such as a credible uh, message source. So again, in um, in the, the Substack situation, they went for the peripheral, in my opinion, and what they were doing was offering simple cues from a trusted source. So this was the influencer who was offering the cues, which was untrustable problem, and then boom, like the programming of the, the insect colony got to work, you know, to address things, to fix them up for the, the leader, which is sort of how the, the colony behavior happens. Uh, the third step, uh, although it could be argued it's the first step, would be uh, to be clear about the goal of the message. So what what are you doing? Yeah, what, what are you trying to do with this message? Um, and it's interesting. I would say within the Substack situation, the, uh, again, I can't get in the person's head and, and guess. Uh, I can only guess what uh, their, their intention might be. But I think uh, the framing me as an untrustable source and therefore uh, amplifying Robert F. Kennedy's status as the preferred candidate by uh, discounting these concerns around uh, the early treatment drugs and pay for success finance and Steve Kirsch uh, was the goal. She, you know, for this small community, uh, the people who have, again, and I'm not putting this all on her. And again, I don't think that this is the only incident of this happening. I'm sure this is happening in many other places, but this is just what I had to win to into because I was inadvertently dragged into it. Um, or I won't say dragged into it. There was a door that opened because of them using my material and I I agreed to go in. So I think it's really important when I'm talking about what happened to me on the Substack 
it wasn't one person who did this. It was the collaboration of an entire community. And so I've had a couple people comment on my thread about the individual. And I said, I think that's kind of missing the point. Like I understand that people have had past experiences with such person. But in this, what I find is interesting is looking at the collective behavior because that's what they're after. They want the switch on the collective behavior. And so if we, if we cut the audience the slack for participating and following the cues, the peripheral cues, then we've kind of missed the point. And so we actually have to own our responsibility of being in the game. And, and so uh, I guess I'm looking back now and reflecting on that experience. And, you know, someone, a friend was saying, I think that this was just a distraction to keep you from your work. And I'm like, well, I've had things that have happened to me that I think were distractions. But in this case, I actually did get something out of it. It actually was uh, a lesson in an exact case study of what how this works, right? And so I learned something. And I did set my own terms in terms of only engaging in a couple of days and then deleting my account. Uh, so I, I broke that energetic connection. And for a while there, I would say it was tempting. It was a bit tempting to stay uh, because I kind of forgotten what it was like to get a click or a like or a comment. And, you know, it's, you know, I got off Twitter in, in July and, um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a little addictive, right? It's, it's tempting to be drawn back in. I could see that. And, and I could see for me that it was important that I make the break, right? Like that I, I did my thing. I showed up, I made my case. I allowed people to, uh, participate or not and make my assessment and they stepped out of the experiment. So it was in the game, but briefly, like I'm not there. In fact, I did, I didn't look at her post today just cause I'm, you know, it's interesting to me that it goes on, but I didn't look at the comments because I know what it is. Like I know what this game is now. And once you know, it's kind of like, again, the magician with the trick. Once you know the trick, it's less interesting. It's a lot less interesting. So, um, Again, you need to know what the goal is. Uh, the fourth step is like, so how do all the steps fit together? You know, how do does your mes message go? How does your un understanding of the audience go to, to build the case that you're trying to make? And I would say that is where the digital twinning fits in with the AI, is that each of us is a digital twin and they know how to push the buttons individually and collectively. And then five, this is this idea of testing the message effectiveness, okay? And then you experiment. So you try one message and then you pause and then you try another and then you're always measuring it to see which is, is the way to go. So I just, uh, let me see. I wanna go back to this for a second. Uh, the elaboration model. And I think this is really important, the A-B testing. So I, I wanna bring my own experience into it a little bit. I, um, I've talked, uh, this is a blog post from 2019. It's about Procter and Gamble. And I describe in this post that my father was a career executive for Procter and Gamble. Uh, you know, he was a guy who came from a pretty difficult household and he spent his high school uh, days uh, after school playing football and working in a grocery store. And he got a job selling Folgers coffee and he was really good at it. And he spent his whole adult life uh, selling, doing beverage sales for Procter and Gamble. And so I, I was raised uh, sort of, you know, first generation suburban corporate kid. And Procter and Gamble was a real presence in my life because my my dad was a, a brand manager, so to speak, right? Like, he, you know, I, I even remember he would go to, you know, our friend's house, not, not my, but his friend's houses, you know, people in the neighborhood and like open the cupboard to see what kind of coffee they had and like make a point about it or see what kind of dish detergent. And he was very much about the brand. And so I think what's really important in this is understanding that the branding is almost reality. So the brand is like the Substack is a brand. Uh, the, the window onto the world that is offered in 
that Substack is a brand and there are brand management managers. And so within the brand, you, uh, you have the AB testing of the messages. And, you know, for a while until I, I, I left, I was, you know, working in membership uh, for a public botanic garden and we, we had a mail, uh, you know, an email list that I was in charge of updating the email list. And it constantly would become more and more sophisticated with the AI and the algorithms about the messages and the A-B testing. So this A-B testing is really important to understand that this is also what's happening in the Substack. So when I when I looked at what happened to me, the fact that this this was continuing on, I think, for a fifth day, you know, on the one hand, you could say, oh, well, this is this is generating a lot of traffic for this person and they, uh, you know, maybe they they get something out of having a lot of eyeballs and a lot of time on their site. And so that's why they're dragging it out because of that. Or you might consider they're doing different kind of tests on the back end. Um, and if this is happening, this was such the context of um, what happened to me was within framing about uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential run, right? So it's political. So I think, you know, it wasn't all of the stuff with Cambridge Analytica and the elections and Trump. It's not just about that. It wasn't just about that one time. It's about how all of these platforms are using our digital twins, our digital footprints to do ongoing perception management in the cognitive domain for all kinds of things, and including, I'm sure, the political political aspects. Right. Um, and and, you know, Steve Kirsch, who is, uh, you know, a billionaire who's who's created a pack uh, to for the Kennedy run. You know, he 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 got his education at uh, MIT, a bachelor's and a, and a master's. And he was focused on, uh, you know, early uh, uh, search engines and uh, information uh, document structures and uh, digital identities and other other things. Um, so he's got the chops to understand how this works on the back end. And so I'm sure that there are probably a certain group of uh, people who have a prominent digital presence uh, that the data analytics of how how they could all be being used knowingly or not to do A/B testing on messaging towards these campaigns, right? Because the guy, you know, let's admit it, he's got some baggage. There's some inconsistencies. It's kind of hard to imagine he's running as a Democrat. It's hard to sort of fit his climate, uh, environmental stance, uh, you know, corporate environmentalism in with uh, the U United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It's kind of hard to fit like the energy uh, background in with uh, what's going to be going on with decentralized uh, blockchain energy grids and smart meters and all of this stuff. There's a lot of things that actually have to be gamed out in advance to figure out like how to position his uh, campaign uh, in, a, in a way that's totally, you know, as acceptable as possible. And so I think in some ways, you know, going on the fifth day of me somehow being in the center of her uh, beehive situation, that it, it could be part of the A-B testing. Now, I mentioned this about Procter & Gamble, not just because it was my personal lived experience, um, and that, you know, Procter & Gamble, they developed the soap opera, right? Ivory soap, uh, the soap opera to sell their products. So they're really good at the story, right? Using a story to sell an idea, to sell a reality. Um, and that summer, uh, the summer of 2020, I was, I was doing sort of a cross-country road trip, 
and I stopped in Cincinnati, which is where this is, and Cincinnati is sort of a highly occulted town. Um, and, uh, you know, I had some sage. My friend from South Dakota had said, you know, take some medicine from there and use it. And um, so I went and I, I actually saged the headquarters of, of Procter Gamble, which is right in downtown Cincinnati. And it was it was at the the, at the very end of twilight. Uh, and it was I was summer. It was near the solstice. So it was like nine o'clock and no, no, very few people. And it was quite interesting because there were this crazy amount of starlings you know how they get the murmuration of starlings in these trees in this plaza that was very uh, regimented and geometric and I sat in a median in the middle and I uh and I saged Procter and Gamble's and I said you know I'm sort of separate from all of this but um and then I looked opposite the headquarters was the Cincinnati Masonic Hall in this big one, you know, the, the five hills or whatever of Cincinnati, very big Masonic hall. And I, and then I looked up at the end of the plaza, you know, in front of me, and it was the Nielsen building and it was the Nielsen readings. And, and now Nielsen is neuroscience, right? It is neuroeconomics. It is neuromarketing. So when you understand that it's not just to sell you some soap, but it's to sell you a, re, a view on reality. Um, and, and again, you know, I love my dad. Does my dad know any of these things? No. I mean, and, and now he's suffering from Alzheimer's. So like he's, this is beyond him. He just was a, a guy who got an opportunity to make a good living for his family and build a, a world that he, that he felt was right. Um, I didn't realize till looking back into some of these things that Procter & Gamble was in its early years a defense contractor and involved in some of the nuclear stuff. Um, and of course, you know, the first head of um, DARPA, McElroy, I'm trying to remember his first name, he came out of Procter & Gamble, right? Because they needed to sell people on the idea of, of you know, uh, you know, this defense innovation, uh, Eisenhower did. He needed a sales, a good salesperson. So right now, now the salespeople are AI. Now the salespeople are AI and um, data, data profiling. So in, in this story, though, it was actually about uh, human capital finance. Procter & Gamble was a small piece of it. And it was about building Strive Together, which is also in Cincinnati, and Knowledge Works, which is behind uh, the, the learning, um, these innovative uh, learning ecosystems, de decentralized learning. Uh, all, again, all of it is going to be on blockchain. And then placing bets on people as human capital in these games. And Strive Together it was the spinoff out of Knowledge Works. And that's, again, you've got a little child in a circle, a globe being enclosed. That's the, the unity, right? And you even even see the three people with the Wi-Fi things over their head, right? So you've got you've got money, graduation, housing, and nature, and they're all going to be put into the cybernetic enclosure on blockchain. Uh, uh, and Nancy Zimfer, who wrote this book, uh, she later went on to SUNY, uh, the State University of New York system. To, she was chancellor of that for quite a number of years. She was the head of the University of Cincinnati. And the foreword is by Ben Hecht, and Ben Hecht was of Living Cities, which is Smart Cities. So uh, this is how it, it fits together into the other things that I've been researching. And then... Um, I, I did a map, and unfortunately, they were in Little Sis, and these guys didn't get saved on way back, so I've lost all of these maps. But I mapped everybody who was in the acknowledgement section of this book, and it was a really, really long list. Um, and then in the introduction, they talked about um, that they, uh, when they got this started, uh, Strive Together, which is collective impact, the human capital bets on children, early childhood, and workforce, that the... Uh, an administrative staff comprised of employees on loan from the Knowledge Works Foundation, Procter and Gamble, and other partners coordinated the work. Now, what's also important to know, and I, I don't have this map either, but um, someone from Procter and Gamble, ostensibly, the story goes, they were the ones who actually developed the first uh, Internet of Things. 
Uh, and then they went to, over to work at the auto ID lab at MIT to develop those. And now there's eight auto ID labs. So, um, so here's the, the Nielsen IQ building in Cincinnati. So I mean, picture me, I'm sitting, it's like twilight in the middle of this plaza. And on the one side is the, the Procter & Gamble headquarters. On the other side is the Masonic temple. And at the end, above the, the trees full of starlings going chattering everywhere is, um, is this building. And I, and I can see it later on Google Maps that it's the uh, Nielsen Neuroscience Labs. And so I just want to bring this all together to sort of weave in this idea of um, like advanced neurotechnology and cognitive neuroscience and story and psychiatry and identity and gamification and loyalty and social behaviors and use sociality and emerging tech and blockchain. Because, you know, I wrote up yesterday that the Substack, um, you know, they got a big infusion of capital in 2021 by Andreessen Horowitz, which is really one of the major funders of the Web3 emerging tech space. Um, and it is, it is about optimizing us into the unity consciousness, into a, a, a biohybrid supercomputer. Um, so, you know, when, when we're going back and we're looking at the nudging of testing, I mean, all of this is to go back and say the testing, the message effectiveness, evaluating, you, t you, you create an A-B test, um, you see which is more effective, and then you refine the message, and then you put it back in the loop. And, th and then soon that will all be part of, you know, if they get their way, part of quantum supercomputers, right? It could be done like in a fraction of a second, right? All of us like linked into these things. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Neil McElroy, Lynn said. So, um, so yeah, like th they're going to be manipulating our readiness potential to put us in stories we didn't choose. And I think that on like what's happening now in the substacks is that people are in stories, but they think they chose the story, right? They think they chose the community and they think they chose the story. But increasingly, I think as it goes on, um, they're going to lose touch with the actual reality. And that is what I saw unfolding over like the five days of posts about uh, the, the character that became me in the saga of the truth barrier substack was it actually had nothing to do with me. It was sort of like you could build a character and put a name on it and then say that was the person. And then you could do whatever you wanted to that person. And if you could get it repeated enough in the echo chamber, it would make it real. And it was, you know, you know, I was saying for Cliff, it was like going through the looking glass and you can't actually have a reasonable argument in a world where nothing's real. <laughs> Literally nothing's real. Like if the basis of reality of the core aspect of the particular encounter, which was my content, was impossible to engage with, then nothing was real after that. Any Anything that was said about me, it wasn't actually real. So um, so anyway, it was really good that I left after the second day because things seemed to have continued to spiral in really un unpleasant ways. But if you see these behaviors happening, um, pay attention because I don't think it's by accident. And I don't really even think that it's something that one person did. It is a collective, it is a, an emergent consciousness on all of our parts. Okay, so let's see. It says, uh, so back to the, the paper, although some attitudes are based on effortful thought processes where externally provided information is deemed as personally relevant and integrated into internal and stable belief structures through central route processing, other attitudes are formed as a result of a relatively simple cue contained in a message and in the persuasion context. So the people on that substack, the vast majority of people were operating in that second space. They were reflexive and operating from simple cues. And I would just say, uh, like the idea of an effortful thought process, like this is what that looks like. This is an effortful thought process. 
and and the effortful thought process and I, I i mean i'm not saying this just to to my own horn but it's not it takes time it doesn't mean that i'm smarter but it's it's actually super it takes a really long time to do that and then that is uh when you put the effort into it uh, and you in, are in, able to incorporate new storylines into stable belief structures. And again, I have a very stable belief structure. Like people won't imagine how stable my beliefs are. Like I continue to learn new things. I'm not stagnant. Like I'm very dynamic, but I'm very clear about what my understanding is of the structure. And if something new comes in that doesn't suit it, um, I'll kind of turn it over to see where it fits in and how it might uh add on to the story that I, I have. But it's it's not like I can't expand my thought process. I'm expanding it all the time, but it's very stable because I know it's me. I know this isn't something someone has told me and I'm not sure whether to trust it or not. I know it's coming from inside of me. Um, and, and that's, I think, the thing that people have a hard time with me sometimes arguing because I'm very firm because my belief structure is super stable. Um, I would say like, you know, my loved ones or even people on social media, they get mad at me because I am so firm about things. They can't actually change my mind, not because I'm not listening, but because my the stability of my understanding is much more stable than theirs because what they've done is, for the most part, consume other people's content so they don't have the facility with it that I have in mind because I've I've made the maps and I've thought the thoughts and I've 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 stretched and then I have you know input from you know a small group of uh, very other very engaged people who also are interested in thinking about things in novel ways and thoughtful ways and I you know I benefit from that small community as well and so that I am stable I think the the inclination of these platforms that are monetized through eyeballs and clicks is to keep people unstable and to keep them constantly shifting like a, a school of fish, like a, 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 a flock of birds, so that if you can keep them in motion, you can keep making money off of them. Okay, so it says, uh, taken together, if the goal of a mass media campaign is to produce durable change in attitudes with behavioral consistent consequences, the central route to persuasion would be the preferred per persuasion strategy. But it's very difficult. Like what they're saying is, the central way is the best, but it's difficult to do at scale. Uh, frameworks like ELM offer a means of diagnosing past mass media campaigns, especially in situations where certain messages did not deliver the scale of expected attitude and behavior change. So again, there's a framework. They're building the digital twins. Uh, all of how you interact with things on social media are being built into the prediction modeling uh, for campaigns. And what I would say is when, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying I'm above this, like I kind of have it a campaign right now to try to, you know, it's not maybe overt, but to get people to engage with this idea of, of emergence and complexity and use sociality and integrate that into their thinking um, and, and decision theory and poker. I, I, my campaign is to broaden people's awareness into avenues of thinking that I think are really important to consider. Um, and, and, and they're, the thing about, thinking about those is that there's not just one point. I'm not asking you to consider it and then choose uh, preferred person A or preferred person B. Um, it's open-ended, right? I'm inviting people into an open-ended conversation, which is kind of uncomfortable. A lot of people just like to go in and, um, uh, you know, pick a thing and then feel like they're right and then be surrounded by people that will affirm that they're right about the thing and then not, and then not go farther than that. Um, so, this diagnosing and rerunning the campaigns over and over, like I would say if, if you're um, somebody who frequents this, uh, the Truth Barrier Substack, like look and see if you can see, identify campaigns. I think 
from what I've understood that there's been maybe a shift in some of the culture in that space since the RFK Jr. candidacy came out and that maybe it seems like that is a, a whether an overt or, you know, campaign around this candidacy is emerging. I, I would expect it probably is going to emerge in other uh, digital platforms too. So they're going to test messaging, uh, whether it's this particular candidate, and I'm not saying it's just uh, this one candidate, it's probably all the different candidates. Um, and it's not even just political candidates, it's testing ideas, right? Testing ways like, okay, let's test the uh, lab leak hypothesis. Let's test that. Okay, let's test uh, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, you know, different things around the culture wars or whatever. Let's float this, put it out there for a while, get the data, pull it back in, and then run the thing and then figure out where we want to go next and how we want to nudge. And it's, it, you know, we all know this, but I don't think we know it on a daily basis. And it's just shocking to, to see, see how crazy it is. Um, and then it says, uh, Despite achieving desirable attitude changes, people might lack confidence in the changes if they were triggered based on simple peripheral cues rather than more elaborate processing. And so this elaborate processing, I think, is campaigns over time. So there are probably layers of campaigns and layers of influencers, because I, I think we can see, and that's something Cliff has talked about, these substacks are um, integrated, like there are certain people who refer to other people, um, and that they might not always talk about the same things, but often they'll overlap and reinforce. And so that is the, uh, the amount of confidence building. Um, if you are seeing things in a lot of places with people you're, you've been told are trustworthy, then uh, that would be a more elaborate processing structure. And I think that's important to understand too. And then it says, finally, even if central attitudes were produced, the ability of people to act on the attitudes might be restricted by a lack of skills, resources, or, or opportunities, or undermined by competing social norms. So, so they might have made a behavioral change, but they might not be able to enact it in a public way yet, unless you support them and scaffold them in some way. So, um, and I think probably these, you know, digital commons are going to be, uh, first they get everyone on the same page and then eventually they'll probably start, you know, under the, the framing of like mutual aid or community, these digital community currencies <clears throat> start to make things more actionable, right? And, and then in that, in this ecology of digital money that's probably coming, there will be more, um, chances for participation um, and, and, and then more signaling. And then the more signaling that happens, the more the AI learns. And then um, again, as I'm, I'm kind of floating this out there, again, I keep sort of putting it that I, I, I'm thinking now that maybe the singularity isn't so much that the machine becomes conscious, but is that we are integrated into the machine in this unified way, that maybe the singularity is the omega point, is the union of us and our consciousness into the global brain. Like maybe we're the singular, like the incipient singularity that is being steered and nudged into that more than like they're harvesting us for the machine, that it is about an integration, a, a, a human machine integration uh, that will, will happen through this unification process. Okay, so, all right, so that's this, that, those are the highlights from this paper. Um, hopefully you found it as interesting as I did. Like for me, it was like, oh my gosh, this explains so much. Um, Let's see. So, all right. So, so I did the chart. I've done the paper. Um, I will just say, so, you know, the behavior works, I mentioned that it was out of Monash University in Australia, and that came to mind. There were a couple of other things. Um, why Australia? I, I've talked to a couple people about Australia recently, 
Uh, ironically, Event 201 featured in the Substack exchange. And um, what I realized is, and so they were like, oh, this RFK Jr. realized like two years late about Event 201, which is kind of crazy because I made this map in April of 2020. Um, and I said, wow, you know what? In retrospect, and again, I think sometimes if we're not trying to make people wrong and we're willing to sort of admit our own mistakes uh, because we don't know, we act from places that we don't have enough information. You act with the, the information you have available and then you get new information. You're like, oh, that wasn't the right take on that, right? So I was mapping all sorts of things because I had mapped a lot of things in the past. And um, so when Event 201 was like, okay, I'm gonna map this, right? And and so the way I do mapping is I'll take something and then I'll look at all of the people who are you know, at an event. Um, in this case, two of them were Jane Halton, who was connected uh, with uh, the Australian Department of Health and Department of Finance and also had her hands in various uh, health things, World Health Organization and genomics. And this guy, Levon Theroux, uh, who was with the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and we know Singapore was so much about all of the smart everything and uh, smart surveillance, smart nation technologies, um, and to see the overlap of like, oh, this is telling me a story. Now, nobody told me the story. Really, the story was now, and this is the catch. The story was the event. Right. But think about it. So I think part of the discussion that was happening on the stub stack was that RF Kennedy Jr. had, again, rather late, uh, learned about Event 201 and realized that it was all planned out. And, and not only that, he had found all of these other simulations. And so there, you know, now he had a totally different idea about things. And then what I'm realizing is two years later that if you if the CIA is going to have some top secret simulation, they're not going to film it. And they're certainly not going to have their partners tweet, like they're not going to make plush animals, viruses out of it. And they're not going to tweet, their have their partners tweet out pictures of those plushy animals in like cute ways and make sure it's really clear. And so I think, again, these, this is a, it's like a, a psychological operation within a psychological operation, right? So like this, I think that the, that these are plants um, for us to consume and then respond to, and then that gets fed into the simulation again, right? Because if it was really top secret, we I wouldn't be able to make this map, right? I wouldn't have been able to make this map. Now, I was, we were all confused those first months. We didn't know what was going on, right? Like, you know, for the first, you know, maybe, maybe not quite a year, like I was also focused on the World Economic Forum. We didn't understand. We did. I didn't know what information warfare was. Like I didn't understand about cognitive domain, domain management or narrative, you know, narrative framing or any of these things. I didn't know, but you learn by doing, right? So we cut each other some slack. We all learn by doing. So, but in this, this told me a story. So again, in retrospect, was it part, probably part of the simulation response narrative? I think so. If I had to take a guess, that would be my take. Um, but did it teach me some things? It did. And so with that grain of salt, I will say that that mapping these two participants in that event, Jane Halton and Levant Theroux, uh, led me to see how the smart infrastructure of Singapore, you know, here and all of the, the technology, emerging technology that was related to the lockdowns there, uh, in addition to the sensor platforms and programmable money and smart contracts, which again, I've always been more interested in the programmable money and the smart contracts than crypto per se, how it uh, through this trace together fit in with Australia. And unfortunately, I had a, a couple of other great maps of Australia that disappeared when Little Sis deleted all my maps and they didn't get saved. But I had my eye on Australia early on because I knew that uh, I had seen the Boston Consulting Group uh, 
early on, maybe 2015, 2016, had worked on an identity management solution for the Australian post office, which was really unusual. And um, and then they, the, the Commonwealth of Australia had a digital identity framework. Uh, they had a digital transformation agency. They were working on a national digital identity. Um, again, not China, Australia, right? <laughs> they were developing it. And again, I mentioned this uh, C. Ciro, Cicero, uh, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Organization, and their spinoff of Data 61 uh, with this project, Making Money Smart, uh, a programmable money white paper about people on disability. Uh, and, and then we know in Australia that they had a, a lot of issues with uh, putting uh, their digital uh, platform around Indu, the welfare. And at that time, I was looking a lot at uh, the, the SNAP benefits, this idea of uh, putting nudges on uh, programmable nudges on digital wallets for uh, food assistance in the US, <clears throat> and that they were linking Indu uh, and Centerlink uh, to, the, it, it became part of like a, a very highly covered uh, robo-debt extortion uh, program through the welfare recipients. Not, not the welfare recipients weren't perpetuating it, it was the AI and that they were um, essentially targeting people that they said should not have received benefits and then uh, making them pay back the money with exorbitant interest rates. And it was all of a problem with how the uh, digital infrastructure had been set up. Uh, but th th these welfare connections to digital identity and then the linking of the Reserve Bank of Australia to new payments platforms, this thing called OSCO and PayID, again, uh, you know, I, would you call that a central bank digital currency? Well, yeah, kind of. But this was going on, you know, well before this is years before uh, us seeing lockdowns and all starting to pay attention to what we call central bank digital currency. I was much more interested in the programmable money. Um, so so all of this was was happening um, in Australia at the time. And I think that that is important when we're looking at the behavior works, because it's about guiding behavior and signaling through money eventually will also be through voting. Uh, Australia is also, I think, Commonwealth Bank working with the World Bank, I, and they're not on this map, uh, but on the smart social impact bonds. And at the time, my focus was education, and I was thinking that big picture learning, which is a project-based uh, alternative, uh, so supposedly progressive high school based out of Rhode Island that's gone international, that they would be doing an education social impact bond, uh, a smart impact bond on blockchain with the World Bank. And I don't think that has happened yet, although I was in touch with someone who said that they have a lot of housing ones coming online and I think that they're connected with religious groups uh, so for supportive housing which which I've covered a lot in the flow life series so so that's uh, the Monash connection the Monash to the programmable money uh, through CSIRO and uh, that 61 project and then the other thing is uh, neo world now uh, if you've seen the video uh, of my, my friend, and I've talked about it for a while, in the summer of 2019, actually even earlier in California, a, a resolution was passed by the NAACP of California first, and then later at the national conference later that summer, uh, that would um, was opposing any requirement by a government uh, to create a digital identity to receive a public service. So that would be education, health, housing, uh, food assistance, if you are part of the, uh, you know, justice system, any of that, like you couldn't be required to create a digital identity on blockchain. Now, that, that's as best as we knew it at the time, but it passed that summer. Uh, but there was some debate on the floor, which was unusual. It was like the first resolution that had live debate. And the people who were 
opposing it actually were connected to something uh, sort of called Neo World. And, and it was based out of Brooklyn. And, and I've talked about this with Lynn. Uh, Brooklyn is linked to Consensus, which is the blockchain smart contract layer connected with Ethereum. And so th this NAACP in Brooklyn, uh, connected to a gentleman named Franklin Lieberman, they were promoting this project called Neo World with a K, K-N-E-O-W-O-R-L-D. Uh, and it was a behavioral management curriculum, really. It was an app. And it had this international reach, strangely. So it started out in New York City, uh, but the research was was done at Monash University to legitimize this as an evidence-based curriculum. And then it was piloted as an app in China. And then they, it had people who were involved in Indonesia. So it was really a multinational program that was specifically targeting special needs students in alternative education for behavior management. So, and the, the, the thing is about this map is they also had a homeschool component. So it wasn't just in school, it was also working through a homeschool community through uh, Meta. Uh, Facebook meta, and they were creating private groups in Facebook to do these behavior systems. And it was linked to this What Works Clearinghouse, which was a US uh, Department of Education program that would document evidence-based research and set them up for social impact finance. So this is an image of Neo World Homeschool Academy. You can see it was under Neo World proper, uh, connected to Meta. Uh, it gave them access, access to private Facebook groups and Monash University did the curriculum research. Uh, and again, this is the same as the Behavior Works paper that I was reading from. Now, they didn't develop this idea of ELM, but the, I, I just thought that was a really helpful paper. And then the What Works Clearinghouse was, was is sort of the th stamp of approval, like, yeah, this would be good for impact investing. And then we have uh, Neo World per se. Uh, we've got Franklin Lieberman, and he was, uh, you know, uh, I think it was him who was behind the opposition to that resolution on the floor of the National NAACP meeting in 2019 because he didn't want anything that might get in the way of them data mining these special needs kids in New York and other places. Um, and now, now the resolution passed in any event, but the Brooklyn chapter was sort of the one small group that was opposing it, uh, including uh, they had someone, uh, Lori O'Donnell from Abertay College in Scotland. So this person uh, helped develop the curriculum. So it was really multinational. Um, there, there was a uh, an arcade that had brain training and health games. So we, I think we can see where that's going with Group Mind, uh, the homeschool piece, and just the regular educational software. And the the, the parent company was called Intellect. And uh, they were operating uh, out of San Francisco, and then they had offices in Manila, London, Melbourne, and uh, New York City. So that is Neo World, and then. Uh, Neo Media, which is the, the larger connection, uh, they were partnered with Verizon to do the funding of getting devices in the hands of the kids in New York. Uh, they, one of the the companies that was involved was Smart Trans Holdings, a logistics company in Australia. Uh, they got tax incentives from the Australian government as part of developing this curriculum. They were targeting uh, New York City School District 75, which was the special education students. Uh, they were affiliated with Digital Promise, which is a, a, a U.S. program around uh, digital education. 
and uh, they had partnered with the NAACP to distribute their software and the devices that were funded by Verizon. And then Franklin Lieberman, uh, he, I think he was really the person who spearheaded it, and he has a very interesting background. So he, he was a marketing consultant for pharmaceutical companies. So Hoffman uh, LaRoche Chemical Works, uh, a marketing consultant to Johnson & Johnson, a marketing consultant to Pfizer, a marketing consultant to Pepsi, a marketing consultant to AT&T, uh, he did product launches for IBM, and he was a producer at CBS Broadcasting, an executive producer at ABC News, and uh, a former executive producer at NBC Universal, and a producer at Vice Media. So it's a very interesting combination of telecommunications, technology, uh, beverage, you know, sugary beverages, uh, pharmaceuticals, and media outlets. Uh, and he, he did uh, also work for Warner Lambert, which is a pharmaceutical firm, uh, public broadcasting. He, he did this through, I think, KenCast was the name of, with two Ks, KenCast Inc. And uh, was, is very closely tied to the New York NAACP and uh, connected to NeoWorld. And if you look at his uh, LinkedIn, it actually said that in addition to his launches, his, uh, you know, pr uh, various production capacities. He was involved in media, but he, that he, um, let me see where it is. Um, he has a particular expertise in developing awareness and visibility of programs for the launching of new products. Um, it says he created and implemented the promotional and sales programs for the launch of the prescription drug Valium, right? So when we're talking about using these digital devices as uh, uh, something that is changing our biochemical state, I think that's what's coming along next. And you know, I know that there are already things where there are frequency and apps and healing things in phones that people are using remotely. So in some ways they really are using frequency as some sort of uh, biology intervention. But even if it's not coming from a frequency standpoint, I think the activities on these platforms, in these online games, in these augmented reality games are meant to affect our internal mental state and our internal biological state. So again, that is, that's sort of the link there with uh, Neo World. I have a map. It's kind of, a, again, I have, I really like my maps, guys. So, you know, we've got uh, Neo Media here. You have Neo Junior. Uh, that's, again, edutainment and uh, gamification. It was, uh, paid for through micro subscriptions. Again, those are enabled by blockchain. It's It has a digital online learning component where you earn like digital tiny, you know, micro degrees. And and, and the app for the game was tested in China uh, and actually in uh, Guangdong province, which is uh, the, the uh, Chanjiang is there and the, the province is Foshan and they were involved in a lot of smart cities, Shenzhen and Foshan of blockchain smart city pilots and social credit scoring. So that's where they launched uh, the app and the online micropayment system. And then you can see over here, Neo World, you know, their offices here, Manila, London, New York, San Francisco, Melbourne. Uh, and then the Neo World Arcade that included like the health apps and the behavior apps, uh, uh, the brain training is with the National Parent Teacher Association, again, in the US. So they've got the, the NGOs on board. 
Uh, you've got the homeschooling. So I keep saying for people, just because you homeschool doesn't mean that you're outside of this. They want to send you home with these apps. Uh, the What Works Clearinghouse connected to the Institution of Education Science uh, is what's going to you know give the stamp of approval for the impact finance. And you know these guys, the Institute of Educational Science is involved deeply with the social emotional learning uh, and Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and the nudges, a nudge for mission, the nudge lab at UVA. So it's all about behavioral nudging. Again, there, there we've got Monash uh, right there that's doing uh, the curriculum advising through the Digital Education Research Group. Uh, the, the programmable smart money is based out of Monash, the Center for Health Economics, and it's all, they have their own blockchain center. And um, okay, so then we've got the China stuff. And, and again, people are like, China, 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 but you know, Deloitte and all these people are, are really like looking at setting up revenue streams in China. So it's not like it's just China. And then this is just going back to, to New York. Although we, we can see here the, the Australian government's tax incentives. Uh, I think Kellett is uh, an equity guy. I think he might be from Australia for no equity. And one of the other advisors, there was one in Scotland, and this one was at Sultan Idris Education University. I'm, I'm not sure if that's the Philippines or Indonesia, uh, but on game-based learning, we hotan. So very international, very international. And then uh, Verizon gave $3 million to New York to get the devices in the hands. And then you've got here Mr. Lieberman, who is, again, media executive, uh, pharmaceutical executive, product launch, working with IBM, working with Pepsi, and actually the guy who did the rollout of Valium. And so this is essentially digital volume, right? And and sadly, you know, the, the case was even though that that, that resolution passed, um, you know, the NAACP at that same conference had sort of made their ties with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for Finclusion, education, and other things. And um, it uh, they just put it in a drawer and pretended that it didn't happen. So, um, okay, so now I'm just going to get along to sort of the particular. So again, I think that this entire thing that was happening to me on Substack, you know, and I think it happened to me because, again, I'm one of the few people who's offering a different storyline, right, about uh, the health freedom movement and this idea of, yeah, it matters if you believe there was a pandemic um, because then from that flow, the idea, you know, from uh, Robert F. Kennedy's book, Fauci book, it was mismanaged. That's the first chapter, misman you know, uh, mismanaging a pandemic and that they would have a better approach to future pandemics, right? And and we see that you can't erase that history, right? The entire whole thing of the frontline doctors and my white coats and let doctors be doctors and all this stuff. And I kept saying, hey, I'm not saying that doctors can't be a part of the resistance, but you shouldn't put them out front because that's actually exactly, uh, these are people who've been embedded in the system that brought us to this point in the first place. So just because you want to sort of tell us that they've had a change of heart or they've seen the light, that's fine. And you can, you can make that change, but don't put them in as the leaders. Because what that means is if you believe that a pandemic did happen, and I'm not saying that nothing happened, but what I'm saying is we need to be paying a lot more attention to things like frequency and nanotechnology and other things that may have caused these really uh, complex uh, effects on people and, and later repercussions. And again, Steffers has done really good work on the nanotechnology space and um, looking you know, I would especially direct people to like there's one about like uh, 
shedding and transmission set in a grocery store. I can't remember the title right off, but this idea of frequency um, and uh, field, fields, uh, fields of influence, right? Because what Michael Levin's working on in morphogenesis, I think is, is also fields are in play. And I think these sub stacks are creating their own fields of influence. So there are many things that we need to talk about. I'm not saying that nothing happened, but I'm saying if you identify as a pandemic and you put the doctors in charge, the tool of the trade and, the, and you adopt a bioweapon lab leak hypothesis, what you've then done is open the door to us being controlled by biosensors because you can say oh well you know look at our terrible government who developed these things but you know to be safe they might do it again we all should have nanobots in our blood to do the next thing right um we, we're going to need the electron microscopes to figure out the next pathogen right um that's the next thing we're going to need um the good drugs we should be having steve kirsch do all sorts of special finance deals to tell us what the good drugs are for the next pandemic and that's not a that's not a path I want to go down. Um, now, I'm not saying everybody has to follow the path I'm taking, but people have to know that there's actually, it makes a difference what your position is on this. And RFK Jr.'s position, until I see otherwise in some very firm and clear public statement that his first chapter of reimagining or sorry, mismanaging a pandemic, and then you know, 100 plus pages of essentially uh, selling everybody on early treatment protocols and specialty drugs created by pharmaceutical companies that he's not doing that anymore. I'm going to presume he is, and I'm going to say that's not that's not where I stand, right? And I think that's not where a lot of people stand. So they have to figure out how to thread that needle and bring him forward as some sort of viable candidate, unless he's already been tapped to give us the better managed pandemic, you know, which is a really scary prospect because again. Um, you know, I will say the the uh, I saw that in this presentation by Liz Mumford before she was presenting about uh, vaccinology and using personalized medicine towards these safe outcomes. And again, that's not something I'm signing up for. But that who better to um, to legitimate that prospect than uh, a Robert Malone figure, right? The guy who developed the technology in the first place, and and someone that we know is already working in that space. It seems logical. And, you know, I was, I was trying to tell, I was telling Cliff the other day, it's like there's a psychological experiment where they say, okay, so I want you to watch the basketball passes. There's a team wearing white shirts and a team wearing dark shirts. And I want you to count how many passes the team with the white shirts makes um, in this amount of time. All right. So people are really focused and they're paying close attention and they're like, okay, this, and they're like, okay. At the end, they're like, okay, the answer, the correct answer is 16, 16 passes. Now, did you see the gorilla walk through the game? And they're like, there's a gorilla? <laughs> there's like a gorilla? And, and they're like, no, I didn't see the gorilla. And then they play it back and they're like, oh yeah, there's totally a gorilla walking right through the thing. And so what I'm saying is like this stuff that I'm talking about is the gorilla walking through the psychological experiment. So everyone is being steered uh, through these peripheral, you know, behavior changing nudges and social reactions as social insects and slime mold cells or whatever by the influencers who are, you know, the catalytic agents. And the gorilla is walking through the room and it's, you know, at the end of the thing, it's gonna be uh, life ruled by electron microscope, right? And 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 the 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 frontline doctors or something like that. So if, if that's the case, I think we're all gonna be in trouble. We're gonna feel really silly that we went along with this result along. So, um, so again, I've got Steve Kirsch, um, you know, again, here's the thing, like, so, you know, here's his Twitter. I think it's from February. I, I'm forming a super PAC to draft RFK Jr. to run for president. Okay. So he's like, yeah. So, okay. So, and, you know, and, and, you know, Steve Kirsch has shown up, right? Like, why is Steve Kirsch in the mix on all of these things? Um, oh gosh, I thought I had more on there. Okay. So maybe it's in here. 
Um, I did. Okay. I must not have added the, the picture. So Steve Kirsch, just to clarify, he, um, he's again fr from MIT, um, in, uh, early, uh, information, uh, search engine, right? So that again, searching through lots of information, finding relevance. So that it's, that's pattern seeking, right? And that's exactly what's being done right now in these psychological experiments online. Um, and then moving into digital identity. So he's the perfect guy and he's doing all the repurposed drugs for, uh, with impact finance. And that's the stuff that's being advanced by protocol labs. So I'm just going to, I'm going to talk a little bit. I'll show, I'm going to play a clip in a minute. But what I've talked about with free market economics. So I'm going to say that RFK Jr. is talking a lot about uh, crony capitalism and that we just need to take away subsidies and let markets be markets like doctors be doctors and for there to be good, robust signals, good, robust signals. And so and and in the in the clip I'm going to show later, it's it's about an energy grid and creating energy markets with good signals in deregulation to create a national grid and then deregulate it and let there be free market rule, which, as we know, with Enron, that did not work out that well. And it, it's kind of crazy because I didn't realize that Natural Resources Defense Council uh, created the, uh, l I guess, legal infrastructure that changed the the way the, the power stuff was done in California. So I don't know if it's it would be a stretch to say that NRDC like created the business opportunities for Enron's arbitrage trading in energy futures, but it kind of seems like it because um, they, they did this in the mid 80s and Enron was in the early 2000s. So, so you've got the signals. And before I've talked a little bit about, um, you know, this is from my descent map, uh, Bernard Lietaire, and how he was looking for an ecology of diverse currencies. You know, and as I've said before, the whole central bank digital currency, people are thinking it's one thing, but it's not. It's going to be a constellation all attached to the Bank of International for International Settlements ledger. And yes, it will be decentralized centralization, but they want and they want a lot of different kinds of signals. And so when Kennedy is talking about free market economics uh, as a signal, uh, it's important to understand it, I think, as signaling both in terms of biology, digital biology, and also econophysics, which are uh, community currencies, the kind of thing that Catholic Austin Fitz talks about um, moving moving it that way. And one of the key figures in this is uh, Bancor through uh, uh, B Protocol. Now, I think they've moved on to some other kind of automated market makers, but I think that the people involved are really important. And these ideas of alternative uh, markets and uh, creating liquidity uh, in the markets, which is something Leo talks all, a lot about, it has many important people, Brock Pierce, Tim Draper, Various people also, uh, Will Ruddick was on staff for a while with Community Currencies, and he's developing the Serifu, uh, the grassroots economics in Africa, very interested in the signaling. And again, I think it's it's not just economic signaling, it's biomedical, but ultimately I think part of this biohybrid supercomputer may involve a psychic component, may involve an extrasensory component, a spiritual component, which is I think another reason beyond um, economic opportunity and systemic sort of domination, colonization approaches, why Africa and India are being targeted for these things. And grassroots economics, again, working with Cello that Leo's talked about extensively over at Silicon Icarus. So when we're talking free market, um, what you're not going to hear Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talk about, I don't think, is token engineering, right? And, and the fact that people can emphasize the need for free markets and yet pretend that token engineering isn't a thing or isn't coming is... Um, 
is a problem. And, and that's why, again, if I have a campaign out here, my campaign would be pay attention. Pay attention to use sociality and steering, uh, but also pay attention to token engineering. And this is something, you know, again, I'm grateful to Jason and Leo for introducing me to these ideas and doing work, sort of fleshing them out around protocol labs and curve labs. And I, you know, I had brought actually IXO Foundation. I, I, I learned that for myself and then, um, you know, brought in a lot of uh, Leo brought in a lot of stuff and Jason other stuff. So, but but I had this kernel of IXO Foundation putting preschoolers on blockchain for social credit for betting for these impact markets. And so, um, when you hear free markets, I think it's disingenuous for people to talk about it as if they don't know that this is going on in the background. The 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 planned at the very top level of the ecology of currencies, which are really being fed through this Schumacher Center. And you know, I know people who um, you know been sold on the idea of community currency, not knowing about Web three not knowing about token engineering and they weren't supposed to know until um, it, it was too late to do anything about it. So they're going to tell a really nice story about uh, regenerative economics, regenerative finance, local currencies before they pop in with the uh, human steering at global scales, right, towards uh, whatever our tokenized uh, self-actualization uh, self that, that Trent McConaughey is always talking about. And and that's this comes up to this sort of part is that um, uh, Galila Benarzi was, was connected to Bancor and she held uh, this big visioning summit up at Bretton Woods a few years back. I think in 2019, right before everything went crazy. And the keynote of that was Rianne Eisler, who I think is someone that a lot of people really admire, uh, but she's a, a systems theorist. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, she tells a really good story. Uh, but she and her husband, who was uh, connected to the Navy in Princeton and the Psychosocial Adaptation and Moral Evolution Group, right? That's quite a pair. Uh, is that they were part of this general evolution research group in the 80s uh, using uh, chaos theory to bring order to the world. And uh, they were in partnership with Irvin Laszlo on that. And, and they had ties to the Omega Institute, which again was informed by Talar Desjardins. So it, it is, it's, it's weird to think of like free market economics bringing some sort of uh, global brain, quote unquote, unity uh, to the thing through this reframing of the commons. But I think that that's actually what's gonna, what's planned on happening. So I'm just going to throw out a few things. This isn't like a whole big unpacking of RFK Jr., but I just want to emphasize. So he was the senior attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council um, from 1986 to 2017. So a long time. He wasn't an intern. He wasn't there for just a little bit of time. He spent the better chunk of his career doing this work. And essentially, uh, this was corporate environmentalism. It was it was corporate work. It was framed, again, I would say the river keepers, the Hudson River Keeper structure. Think about what's coming with water. Uh, think about what's coming with water programming. Think about what's coming with uh, graphene uh, filtration of water, uh, because some of the things that uh, Vantage Point was involved with that Kennedy was on the board were uh, wastewater treatment to create fertilizers. Uh, and I, I think this wastewater treatment would likely also be a, a candidate for graphene lattice uh, filtration systems. So think about the water programming and understand that, <clears throat> again, this was not a grassroots group. This was a group ch channeling millions and millions of dollars from some very high level sources, including impact finance. So, um, you know, I've shared this clip before. This is a list of uh, donors to the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, including, I mean, many, many uh, millions of dollars provided by the Rockefeller Foundation. So again, it is disingenuous uh, in some ways. Now, it, it's not saying that someone can't um, make a different choice and realize like, oh yeah, 
that 20 years I spent having my salary funded by um, these institutions could, in retrospect, that wasn't a good thing. And and I, I'm allowing that he could totally say that. I, I don't I don't think he has, and I don't think he will because the reason that he's being put in a place to run for president is to support these interests, the interests that paid his salary for 20 years. I mean, that's, I think, and, and unless, you know, he could prove me wrong and, and then I would be fine with that and I would say, okay. Um, <clears throat> but until that happens, I'm gonna presume that the people who were behind the Natural Resources Defense Council where he was senior attorney um, are the people who are calling the tune of the piper, right? So we've got Apollo Management, uh, Carnegie Corporation. Many of these are um, connected to education technology. So th many of these names were familiar to me through by following the privatization of education and looking at it. Because I think what ultimately what this is about is cybernetic control of consciousness of, of, of natural life on this planet towards some biohybrid computer. So I came at it through the education door, which was really helpful because it, it, unknowingly and it's taken me eight years to get here but it was an increasing a very expansive view that was offered if I, I was willing to keep walking and keep looking and keep following the money it was a very expansive view tied to artificial tech, uh, AI artificial intelligence connected to the education door um, as well as to the built environment but I didn't know that at the time so Carnegie is is central I would say Carnegie is also known for its peace the Carnegie Peace Endowment uh, the Carnegie Peace Palace and the peace stuff is linked to cybernetics and homeostasis. Uh, then you'll see a lot from ClimateWorks. I'm pretty sure ClimateWorks is Tom Steyer. We're going to talk about Tom Steyer in a second. Ford Foundation, uh, you know, here's 2.4 million. Now he left in 2017, so maybe not, but the year he left, they were giving, uh, you know, $1.5 million to the Ford Foundation. Uh, the Gap, Gap very invested in uh, privatization. Uh, uh, League of Conservation Voters, a number from MacArthur. MacArthur is key. Three million. I mean, those aren't small numbers. These are while he was there. Uh, Three million in 2015. Uh, they're behind the badge-based, uh, badge-based with Mozilla edu Education, the learning, uh, learning ecosystems. You've got, uh, you know, Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Uh, several of those, Rockefeller Foundation, many, many, that's by far the largest, the Bauman Foundation, I need to look into that. Uh, David and Lucille Packard, they kind of team with the Hewlett Packard Foundation on the education side of things. I don't know where they are in other spaces, but they're very much about, they helped set up the data infrastructure in San Jose uh, that created DataZone. So that was the Packards. Uh, Joyce, the Waltons, again, that's Walmart, very one of the key, key players in education privatization. Uh, the Hewlett Foundation, uh, which I've talked about uh, recently with Lynn Davenport about open education resources because they were the major funder. So um, this is a lot of money. Uh, he, I would assume as the lead attorney that he would understand what these interests were and how to keep them happy. Um, you know, it is it is what it is, but I don't think that you can say that he uh, is somehow uh, coming from the fringe. He's he's definitely in the the establishment. Uh, he was a managing partner for uh, Vantage Point Venture Partners, so he was on their Clean Tech Advisory Council uh, in two thousand seven. Uh, so Clean Tech, and then he he became. Uh, Let's see, it says, uh, they have announced the appointment as a venture partner and a member of the clean tech investment team, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And this was in 2009. Um, and I've seen things as late as 2014. They tell me that he's not 
part of it anymore. But it's interesting. I don't know if anyone else can find a LinkedIn for him. Uh, this is the kind of thing normally people would have, you know, on their on their LinkedIn profiles is, uh, you know, their dates for something like this if they were on the board for a certain amount of time, but you can't find it. I think I found one, but it just had education and it didn't have any jobs or anything. So you would think that a presidential candidate would sort of flesh that out a little bit more so we could get a sense of who he was and what his experience is. But as, so far, I haven't found it. So again, as of 2019, he was a, a managing partner. And, you know, the thing that's very frustrating to me is like a year or so ago, I think it was December of 2021, I had like a very pointed exchange by email with Mary Holland, who's, who's a lawyer for RFK Jr.'s fund, and Michael Kane, who was someone who had I been uh, in touch with about uh, the education, because his background was in education, about these issues. And, and they were literally gaslighting me just to tell me like, oh, he wasn't a partner, or it didn't really matter, or, he wasn't really doing anything, or he only ever in, was involved in a surfboard thing or whatever. But it, it isn't, it isn't, that's not accurate. And in here it says that he has taken board positions on two portfolios, Premium Power, a manufacturer of energy storage, and Ostara Nutrient Recovery, a wastewater remediation. And um, and then later on, he's really pitching BrightSource, which is this alternative energy thing with mirrors and stuff in the desert. Um, so yeah, no, he did take active roles in this. And and, and, and it's clear from what, how he speaks that he was very active in the alternative energy space very, very active. And so I don't think that that can be set aside casually when what we're looking at is the use of a distributed decentralized energy grid tied to digital identities and smart meters and Internet of Things connected devices and ubiquitous computing and pervasive technologies to say it doesn't matter. Right. And and that's exactly what was happening in the Substack was the person who, you know, Celia Farber was essentially sort of like erasing history. It was very 1984. Like, oh, just because he said that this in his book, uh, he's changed his mind and we can forget about that. That's the past is past and it hasn't actually happened. So, you know, I, I was very upset because I will be very straight with people. I am direct. I am not mean spirited, but don't gaslight me and don't treat me like I'm an idiot. Right. And I think that they're going to have to figure out if he's going to run this candidacy, how to talk to people unless they can get everyone entrained in the stigmergic and computer um, to explain this. Right. Tell me how this is going to work with your energy interests and your environmental interests. Um, and you're being funded for years and years by the people who are privatizing education and turning it into a digital video game, that somehow you're the freedom candidate. Like, and, and, and maybe you are the freedom candidate is if it's free dom with the capital D-O-M domination, right? It's like the backdoor freedom candidate. Um, very, very frustrating. So again, they keep telling me that he's not part of this organization. And yet um, you can see, I just took this screenshot this morning. This is Vantage Point Capital Partners. It's their team members. It says copyright uh, 2023. So if he wasn't part of it, you would think by now someone would tell Vantage Point Capital Partners to take down his page. Now, I don't think it's actually linked to from the front page, which is interesting, but it's still there and it's updated with a current copyright date. So tell me again how he's not part of this. You know, I just I don't understand. And for people who aren't understanding what Vantage Point is, this is the, an image from their uh, home page. And it. Uh, so it has, for people who might be listening, uh, a smart, well, uh, yeah, smart meter probably, uh, a house with a heat sensing thing on it, like with uh, heat sensing tomography, uh, a smart highway with smart lighting and technology. And, and these, these, are the, these are the words that are there. These are the, this is what they invest in. 
LED lighting, okay? So we know this is part of optogenetics. Biochemicals and fuels, electric vehicles. Okay, so tell me about the autonomous, the electric cars and all the, the nonsense, right? This is what they're investing in. Solar, wind, grid optimization. Grid optimization, that is your blockchain decentralized grid with smart contracts, okay? Um, uh, power storage, batteries are really important. The amount of stuff that they have in batteries, hugely concerning, especially when they're looking to turn us into batteries to power our wearables. A lot, I've got a lot of concerns about the batteries. Clean water, again, clean water relates to graphene programming of water. So we need to understand the water is programming. Uh, sustainable robotics, right? So um, yeah, sustainable, Ro not just robotics, but sustainable ones. So again, what they're, they're gonna turn us into their robots, right? That, that'll be super sustainable that they'll just like use our, like hijack our bodies and turn us into the robots. So that, that would be sustainable. Um, telecommunications, healthcare, cloud computing, digital media, consumer products, logistics, again, blockchain, transportation, cold storage, enterprise technology, and FinTech. So that's the open air prison, guys, that's it. That's, that's, that's where we're at. We're, we're, he's building the open air, like the, the people he's partnering with. And again, um, I'm open to him updating his LinkedIn profile and providing some resources so that if there's an end date on this, like we know when it was and we can like check it out. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, this, 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 uh, copyright 2023 here, like indicates it's still active. So, you know, what are we to say? He has some accounting to do for, for what's coming. And, you know, this is the portfolio page. Uh, they have current uh, portfolio companies. They have four. Uh, Genomatica. Okay. So that looks like genome stuff. It's got three little hexagons there, sustainable chemicals in production. That looks like bioreactors, to be honest. Um, Amprius, advanced lithium ion batteries. BrightSource, that's the thing he's talked about before. Utility scale solar thermal power plants. And PICA 8, open networking, uh, switching solutions. And again, a lot of the stuff that's coming is about switching and circuitry. Um, so I'm just gonna just scroll through the portfolios just so you can see some of these. Um, now these are the ones they've exited, so you know for what it's worth. But they've got inter, inter touch tunes, interactive entertainment, Solazyme, advanced bioproducts, Alert Me, home energy management. <laughs> um, let's see, uh, optical networks. So we're moving into optical computing. Tesla. I think he was actually involved in the Tesla investment stuff. Uh, LiveScribe, digital note taking. Um, social media recruiting acquired by Workday, uh, energy efficient storage, biopharmaceuticals, Anthera. Oh, look, Conceptus, Ensure, Assure Birth Control Systems. Um, CGI, Small Molecule Therapies acquired by Gilead. Um, Axon Technologies, Micro Optical Products acquired by Volcano. Um, interactive Sports Platform, that has to do with teaming, Fan IQ. Uh, LED epitaxel wafers, uh, LED lights, that's connected to the optoelectronics. Uh, Inxite, visualization and search. Uh, voice over IP border control solutions, okay? Kagor, we've got border controls. Um, let's see, spatial wireless networking switching solutions. Uh, 
Bridge Lux Advanced Solid State LED Lighting, Liquid Robotics. Okay, yeah, so Mary was like, oh no, Allison, he was only ever advised them on a surfboard. It was, it's just an ocean surfboard. Well, it turns out that this ocean surfboard is connected, I think, with Lockheed. It was either Boeing or Lockheed. Um, and it was like, had links in with part of like the DARPA ocean like challenge. Um, it's an ocean drone. This is an ocean drone, okay? Um, Bio Accelerex Biomanufacturing acquired by GE Healthcare. Intel, a Tidal Software Intelligent Automation acquired by Cisco. I mean, I don't think we need, okay, I'm almost done. Uh, uh, 1366, well, that's a number for people who like all the Gematria stuff. Innovative Silicon Cell Architecture for Efficiency. There's the Ostara, the white wastewater treatments. Uh, Freesia, automated, automated patient check-in solutions for healthcare. Talix, intelligent patient data analytics. Okay, so it's not, you know, there's a more complicated story. We don't all just line up and go, oh, okay, this is the guy, right? Like, this is the thing we do. We just line up behind him, right? We should be allowed to have a conversation about this. And what was very clear to me on Celia Farber's Substack was that no conversation was allowed. Um, and that, in fact, not only was it not allowed, but people who weren't even part of her community, she would bring in and try to like smear their research so that if you encountered it somewhere else, you wouldn't trust it. And so this is like, I mean, and again, I'm not saying that she did this with his, uh, you know, as a, at his request or anything, but if you have people, because I, I know he's identified her as his brilliant researcher, I don't know what like they're, how, how much research she's done for him, but um, like if these are people in your inner circle and this is how you're representing yourself, um, as a candidate, I just, I think, unless you've been bedazzled by the Substack pheromones, you, it's not going to come off very well. So uh, here, so I'm going to play, I'm going to play this clip. Uh, I think this is towards the end. I'm, I'm going to wait on the clip. I'm going to do a couple things. So he's talking about here how um, in this image, this is from 2012. It's a presentation he gave in Houston. And I don't know if Lynn is still on here, but it's it's really important. Uh, the energy trading is central. Texas is central. Texas being a blockchain state is central. Uh, the, the blockchain and the energy, they go hand in hand with the ed tech and the human capital and the digital government innovation and the free markets. It's very baked in. There's a reason why the big tech companies are leaving California and they're moving to Texas. And... Uh, so he's in Houston and he's pitching this to the energy interest in Houston about creating a national grid and then running it on free market economics. Now, what he doesn't say, and he's just telling like, this is great, we'll have great signals, everything will be good, it won't be crony capitalism. And by the way, like we set up uh, with Natural Resources Defense uh, Council, we set up the law to make California use less energy than everybody else because we're, we're doing it for the common good. Right. He's like, there, there's bad incentives for the energy market. And I'm not again, I'm not saying that the current energy market is great, but it's it's that they're not telling the full truth. The future is setting up the digital commoning uh, on blockchain and then using it, putting us in the outside in robot to program our well-being according to some outside program and then making us live inside it like we're in some sort of gerbil cage. Um, that's what actually is going to be framed as a public good, as a digital public good. And that would have been in development by 2012, right? And so whether he knew that exactly or not, but he should know it now. Because if you're going to be a presidential candidate and you have uh, your supporters who are on Substack, who are funded by Andreessen Horowitz, who are the lead financiers of Web3 Technologies, you probably better get up to speed on what Web3 actually is. And, and the energy grids are a central piece of that. So um, 
Anyway, so, but what he doesn't say in terms of his whole free market analysis, he doesn't bring up Enron, right? He doesn't say, oh, we remade the rules and the free market is great. Oh, because we're just going to pretend the Enron California energy crisis didn't happen. And what happened, and I, I can't run this clip because every time I do, they say, oh, copyright infringement or something. But uh, there, there was a documentary called The Smartest Guys in the Room about Enron. And, and you know, it's important because the Enron people are still coming back into things in the human capital speculation space. Um, and they... Uh, and what they did was they did arbitrage. And so there were crazy incentives for them to create a crisis and then resolve it. And then they did things that were really crooked and terrible within this within the, the, the playground that evidently Natural Resources Defense Council created for California to wreck it. Now, that's not part of the presentation that he's telling to Houston, although clearly the people in Houston would know. <laughs> they would know exactly what, what happened in, with California energy trading and how terrible it was. So, um, so from this article, and it was an academic article, I'll just read it, says uh, from the Business History Review, Enron and the California Energy Crisis, the role of networks in enabling organizational corruption. And this is from January of 2020. Um, and so this is an academic article about how the corruption happened. And I just, this is the introductory paragraphs. On June 25th, 2003, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission revoked Enron's market-based authority, effectively its license to trade wholesale energy, ruling that the company's Oregon-based West Power Division had manipulated neighboring California's wholesale electricity markets via various gaming practices. Okay, so gaming. Now what I'm saying is Substack is a game. It's a game. If you don't see it as a game, you're, you're, you don't understand it, okay? Um, so uh, as a consequence, Enron was found to have severely disrupted energy markets throughout the Western states, contributing to a prolonged shortage of energy supply that would ultimately become known as the California energy crisis. Five years previously, California had dramatically reconfigured its energy supply industry, splitting up the large monopoly utilities and creating markets for electricity to be traded between various participants, which seems to me is exactly what RFK Jr. is calling for at a nation scale. Okay, um, to create uh, these open markets. The move was the first of its kind in the United States, following widespread liberalization of other regulated industries like natural gas, and the system initially performed well in, uh, following its inception in 1998. However, by the spring of 2000, supply problems began to appear, leading to sharp rises in the cost of wholesale electricity. And then this is the second paragraph. While similar practices were found elsewhere, Enron's manipulation of California's markets was particularly extreme. Specifically, Enron's traders used their knowledge of the newly designed markets to artificially increase or decrease wholesale prices in their favor, which often involves submitting false supply and demand information, withholding available electricity, or scheduling energy they did not have. They also made use of flaws in the market's new computerized scheduling system. For instance, deliberately overloading parts of the grid to then receive payments for relieving it, okay? So this is pretty crappy, right? This is pretty crappy all, all, all When I play this clip, like you'll know, right? That this is what he's talking about, only he's not gonna tell you about Enron. But again, it's the, what is the next layer, right? So this is in the Business History Review. It's coming out just now. Well, what is the timing of this, right? This is what we should all be thinking. Hmm, well, hmm, how would this be useful to the program, right? Well, Enron's bad behavior there, the things that they talk about, right? About uh, manipulation, uh, using secret knowledge, artificially doing prices, withholding electricity, submitting false information. Can you imagine something that might fix those things? 
right? Well, of course you would put blockchain AI something or other in charge, right? Don't leave it to Enron, leave it to some distributed system, right? So this is just what occurred to me now is like they created the problem to give you the solution, right? They're fine to let Enron wreck all the things. So then like 20 years later, they can come back and go, okay, we're gonna do it. Now we're gonna do the California thing across the country. But remember that Enron thing that got really messed up? Well, now we're gonna do it with blockchain. So everybody has to be trustworthy. So. Um, so I think that is important. Um, the other thing that is important to understand about Texas is, uh, and I talked with this a bit on the Flow Life session that I did with Lynn uh, about Texas, is that switch with a Y-S-W-Y-T-C-H is very interesting to me. Uh, there is this thing called the digital, the ID3 group that John Clippinger at MIT Media Lab had set up with Sandy Pentland. Uh, years ago, and they were really focused on the early prototypes of uh, digital identity. And they called it open mustard seed. And it was this way of creating a quote unquote trusted compute cell. So I guess if you have a trusted compute cell, people like me who are the chaos agents of the Substack can't get in, right? So you have your, you know, maybe that's what, what Celia means, why the, tr the truth barrier or whatever, you know? Um, so you create this trusted compute cell, right? And they worked on digital identity really hard. And then they spun out something called the Token Commons Foundation. Um, and then the Token Commons Foundation, uh, they were for, for maybe 10, 15 years based in uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, connected to MIT, sort of an extension of MIT Media Lab. In 2019, in the lead up to all the nonsense, uh, they relocated to Austin. And they guess what? They switched up. They changed their name to Token Commons Foundation, which also has a footprint in Switzerland. And then they switched from digital ID to alternative energy, right? And then they started launching um, essentially sort of token engineering uh, credits for good energy use. Only they got into trouble with the SEC because they couldn't actually have those are securities tokens and they're regulated. So they're like, oh, oh, we take it back. Okay, we're not doing behavior tokens with our switch prosumer, right? Um, but this idea, when, when I play this clip, you'll hear Kennedy say stuff like, we wanna create every person in America and every turn every house into an entrepreneurial energy machine which is really intense when you think about like what is actually coming out of his mouth. But if you frame it within this idea of switch and the Texas energy futures trading and the behaviors tied to solar panels and smart people, smart meters and smart appliances and all of this stuff, um, it makes sense. Now they had to backtrack because again, they said, oops, uh, if we do this, it's a, it's not a utility token anymore or uh, it's not a utility, it's a securities token and uh, we don't want that much trouble just yet. We haven't figured out all the things. So they took it back. But Switch and again, you can see the Token Commons Foundation is the same as Switch. So them being in Austin and switching from digital ID to uh, alternative energy is important. And then, so here's just the map to point this out. You've got, you know, Mr. Clippinger there from MIT Media Lab and the Token Commons Foundation. And he's doing some presentation on sort of, uh, what is it, city science. And you know, you've got him here, he's at the, the Human Dynamics Group with Sandy Pentland, who's over here off the page. Uh, he's advising the Aspen Institute, which is deep player in impact finance, uh, the Santa Fe Institute, deeply into complexity theory. And, uh, and he's running this thing called the ID3 uh, Institute for Institutional Innovation and Data-Driven Design. Um, and he's also promoting these Windhover principles, which is uh, digital identity developed in partnership with Tada Ripple Labs, and, and several people have asked me if I talked a lot about Ripple. I haven't done a ton, but this is sort of part of it. Um, and interestingly, a co-founder is this guy Dan Harple, who does supply chains of everything and is working on open music. 
And so I think we need to understand music and also scent and olfaction as part of the stigmergic signaling. And clearly we know that music is huge in the subliminal messaging space. I mean, they've used that in like the Muzak for so many years, right? But this idea of open music for programming people in the Ant computer is really important. So I want to point that out. And then they, they've moved over to the, the token commons from Boston to Austin, but they still have this uh, footprint over in Switzerland. And here I just have an image of Texas Republicans. Again, they want to make the, the, the state the center of the cryptocurrency universe. What this headline doesn't say is that actually blockchain is about much more than cryptocurrency. And what they're doing is they're moving forward with digital government uh, that will be tied to blockchain and human capital finance. And they're going to they're, be, they're using blockchain already in the education systems and the credentialing systems. As long as they can make it about cryptocurrency, they don't have to talk about the other stuff. Um, and even I would say that the crypto mining is probably a setup for a transition to a decentralized grid that has some sort of other innovative kinds of, you know, energy generation, I think, that are that are coming. Um, because uh, they're going to use the crypto to say, oh, well, look, we have, we, it's drawing too much energy. We need innovative energy uses. And then here, uh, Steyer was a big backer of uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council. And uh, in, this is from 2015. So he shut down his uh, NGO dealing with environmentalism. And this is like straight up corporate environmentalism. Uh, and he's deeply embedded in the impact finance space. Now, he would be more aligned with the work that Leo has been doing in natural capital, right? I do uh, human capital. Leo does more than natural capital. But the climate stuff would be closely embedded in all the blockchaining and the regenerative finance stuff that was set up. So major, major funder of uh, Natural Resources Defense Council. So he shuts it down in 2015 to run for president. Uh, but then it, from the same article, it says that, um, so there was an email sent out that the California-based energy policy operation would shift to Next Gen Climate America, a nonprofit led by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Climate Ab climate advocacy veteran Dan Lashoff and co-located with Tom Steyer's political organization, Next Gen Climate Action. So it sounds like they're pretty much the same thing right here. Like, oh yeah, we're going to shut it down, but we're going to like reop reopen it uh, with our buddy over here that we're co-located with, right? So like on paper, we shut it down, but not really. And this is, this is important because again, you know, if you think about it, like it doesn't seem truly logical that RF Kennedy Jr. would be running on the Democratic ticket, like it, it, unless you understand that his backers who maybe think that they can buy this are deeply embedded in the Democratic Party and that there may be interests um, if what we go along with is some sort of, um, you know, ongoing required pharmaceutical intervention or something that could be linked to a digital identity and behavior management and energy, that they would be happy to participate, right? And they would be happy to sort of put, put their you know, be the, the, the party to front that if that's what they could get out of it. Um, now, Steyer, Steyer was a panelist at the first Vatican Impact Investing Conference. And I will say uh, the Substack, the thing that actually led to the comment that got pulled, and then it was like a meta, 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 a thing of a thing of a thing of a thing. Like uh, Celia Farber had made a post uh, saying that, oh my gosh, uh, RFK Jr. and his presidential uh, campaign should definitely tap into the Catholic side of things because he's, you know, it, it's it's channeling a little bit of the Naomi Wolf good and evil. Like he knows evil, right? And he's a good Catholic. And, and this, this could be a really good thing for him in this campaign. Well, okay, so that's interesting because the Catholic Church and the Vatican specifically is deeply invested in impact finance in the U.S. coming through the Notre Dame Business School, but then, um, uh, you know, again, going through the Vatican. 
And so the, the first conference was in 2014, framed as for the poor. But again, Steyer is in it because he's interested in energy and climate futures. And you can see some of the people. Uh, you know, they had a private meeting with the Pope. Uh, it's this woman, Carolyn Wu, that I've tracked. And she's the president of Catholic Relief Services as a major player. Uh, Felipe Santos, the academic director of INSEAD, of social entrepreneurship. Uh, Patricia Deneen, she's very important because she's the, the chair of the Impact Finance Investing Council. Uh, she is aligned with the Boston Archdiocese, all right? So we're talking about putting people on blockchain. We're talking about building digital twins. We're talking about tracking behavior. We're also talking about linking it into an institution uh, that has a pretty bad track record with regard to harming children, right? A among others. And and so, and I'm not saying that that's across the board for all Catholics, but institutionally, it's a problem. And so you link global financial markets to this and the same people who perpetrated those past harms, you move into the next space. It's, it's a concern, right? And then you've got Ronald Cohen, you know, my buddy Ronald Cohen, who I used to spend a lot more time thinking about, but my, my, my view has gotten so much larger. But he's the guy in Great Britain with tie, close ties to Israel who, uh, built the social impact bond market in in England and then Michael Bloomberg brought it here. So these are these are very key players who were there in 2014 and then you know we've got this last bit of the page where we've got uh Margie Sullivan who is chief of staff of USAID and again um the USAID, the humanitarian aid, was the early pilot for what's going to come back, boomerang back to everybody using blockchain humanitarian aid. Uh, you know, she moderated a panel uh, on, you know, transformational change. And Tom Steyer was on that panel uh, as representing the next gen climate stuff, as well as John Rogers, executive vice president, chief of staff and secretary to the board of Goldman Sachs. OK, now, guys, this is this is a concern like we need to have a bigger conversation about what this is. And the very fact that for three years we haven't been able to have a conversation about human capital finance. And again, I'm not placing this on the Vatican because you know I've documented very clearly a lot of the faith-based institutions, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is in on this, the Baha'i are in on this, uh, Tikkun Olam, you know, the Jewish people, Jewish church is in on, you know, Jewish synagogues is in on this, Jewish faith. Uh, there's uh, Sharia compliant, ESG, uh, Muslim, like this is happening across, I'm sure they're going to have like probably Taoist, you know, Dao's, Taoist Dao's. Um, it's all of it, but we actually have to start looking, like we have to look at it and they've got everybody running in these little like ant circles. Um, and then swatting at people like me like bah, bah, like and and I realized you know reading this paper today they don't have any incentive to know what I know they don't like they 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 have every disincentive to know and yet it's gonna bite them in the butt in the end it's gonna bite them in the butt um so here is the truth barrier again what a strange name um from April 14th this is what someone commenting on this is what pulled my clip into the whole juggernaut thing that was going on over there. Um, and it's about the Kennedy family going to Poland. And then, you know, all the people came out and, you know, and how inspiring it was. And but the, the last how she closes it is to say, um, you know, it, uh, interestingly, so so this is an important quote. So this is a, a an interview and it says from five years ago. So again, pre lockdown, it says uh, Robert F. Kennedy is talking about the polarized political climate. And so I think what we're going to see is we're going to see an attempt at this transpartisanism. We're going to see an attempt at a third way, like a health freedom third way to, um, and, and I don't know how it's going to work because clearly it's still polarized, but somehow maybe they're going to do this is the Hegelian dialectic synthesis part and that somehow he is going to be introduced as a, um, 
as the, the, you know, the transpartisan answer to freedom and justice in the American way, right? So, so the, the, the title of this, you know, the clip that she's sharing is from five years ago. Robert F. Kennedy discusses the polarized political climate. So he's going to be set up, I think, as the answer to polarity. So this is Celia's uh, quote. Uh, also take note, also... Also take note also, just how strictly Catholic Ethel was. How many rosaries did the 11 Kennedy children recite each day? If I had a voice in this campaign strategy, I would get Mr. Kennedy on Catholic channels to discuss the faith he was raised in and what it came to mean for him. And again, I'm not trying to dismiss in any way people's faith because I think faith is truly super important. I would say be um, skeptical of institutions because the institutions have been pulled into the ant computer very, very, very clearly. So uh, having gone through all of that, I'm just going to I'll play the clip now and you can hear what you hear in it because um, now. <clears throat> This is part of a longer thing, so I don't want to be accused of like pulling things out of context. Realistically speaking, I can't come on here and like play like a whole 20 minute clip because um, it just if people are not going to pay attention to that. So I have the link like on, on my channel to the original. Actually, it's a whole page of things, but I think it's really important that he's there speaking to people in Houston because you might not think that right. You've got an environmentalist, the guy who's positioned himself as like but he's a corporate environmentalist, right? He's a corporate environmentalist working for the Rockefeller Foundation who created Standard Oil. So maybe it's not really such a juxtaposition, but I think we have to think through the steps, right? Uh, Rockefeller uh, buys the environmental movement and then sends the lawyer slash venture capitalist to promote free market uh, energy trading uh, using a national uh, grid. And I, I think what I'm hearing, and I'll, I'll just you know, emphasize this is they are going to frame uh, the interconnectivity of this national grid like the ARPANET as a public good and something that will benefit us all and that they will probably connect it and try to thread it through the ESG finance. So this is about four minutes. I, 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 a marketplace that turns every American into an energy entrepreneur, every home into a power plant and powers this country. Okay, so I'm just gonna replay that part. So listen closely. I, I, a marketplace that turns every American into an energy entrepreneur, every home into a power plant and powers this country based upon American entrepreneurship and initiative and human energy and what Franklin Roosevelt called America's industrial genius rather than Saudi Arabian oil. Okay, so we're bringing it home, right? But then we are going to be the energy. And I think that's really important to think about, right? Like turning us, did, did, we, did we decide we wanted to be energy entrepreneurs? Like, I don't know when I signed up, like, you know, to, to like when I got a mortgage from my house that I thought I was becoming an American entrepreneur of my energy. But this is going to be linked to, I think, wearable technologies and smart housing. And this is, I think, if you look at it in this way, um, the bringing online of a flow uh, with, uh, again, Adam Newman, the, you know, supposedly chastened Adam Newman and Mark Andreessen and Web3, how this would fit into that agenda. And, you know, we can do that. We have the capacity to do that. I, I'll just tell you, we have an irrational marketplace right now. I, in, in 49 states, the way that utilities make money is by burning as much energy as possible. So my group, Natural Resources Defense Council, rewrote the rules in California in 1982. Okay, so they rewrote the rules in California. Now, this was a shocker to me because I was very familiar with the Enron situation because these people are playing in the human capital finance space still, right? 
but essentially, and, and I don't know, maybe they rewrote the rules and the rules that Enron was playing by were somehow a different set of rules. But like, it seemed to me that they shaped the landscape that he's talking about, which is, is uh, the free market. So that the way that utilities make money in California is by conserving energy and reducing the use of carbon-based fuels. So, and this was not a radical idea. The way now again, the carbon-based fuels. Um, I, I have and uh, and Allison out there from Vermont. I, I've been meaning to put. She she sent me a really important article that was telling, like essentially they're trying to to get stop using wood stoves in Vermont, <laughs> like to stop people from using wood in Vermont. Um, and which is kind of crazy because honestly, the East Coast is far more wooded now than it was in the early 19th century. And that's part of. I mean, can you imagine trying to heat a home like a old uh, wooden farmhouse in Vermont on electric power, you would be bankrupted. And maybe that's the point is to bankrupt people out of their homes with the energy supply and then push them into some smart pod housing. But I, I think that that, again, the decarbonization has real apparent impacts. And I'm not sitting here saying like I'm a proponent, like I'm advocating for the Koch brothers or anything. I'm absolutely not. But I do think that we need to have a more reasonable understanding if we're rolling into this Web3 energy circuitry. And, and I see here, uh, Washington Sean is in the comments. We're talking about the Department of Energy and Genomics and how, you know, yeah, the human the G human genome project and Los Alamos and and the interface of energy with uh, biology, right, the digital biology, that we have to understand that these circuits aren't something that are just in our smart meter. Like literally the circuitry that is going to be pulsing through us is going to be affecting how our biological function and our mental function happens. And who knows, it may already be happening already because I was very shocked to see what unfolded on that substack. Way before we had deregulation in this country, the way that utilities made money is they would, uh, they, they, you know, it's a regulated industry because it's a monopoly. So they have to go to the Public Utility Commission and say, I want to build a dam, a capital project that's going to cost $100 million. We want to make 15% profits per year. And we want your permission to, to build the dam and then to integrate our profits into the rate base so that all the ratepayers pay us back for the dam over time and give us a profit annually. They had to show need and the PUC would stamp it approved and they'd go ahead and build it. And they made guaranteed profit. So today in California, the utilities, the utility CEOs will go to the Public Utility Commission and say, we want to tear the Edison light bulbs out of a million homes and replace them at our cost with LED light bulbs that provide better light and that are uh, and that use 12 percent of the energy. All right. So this is important. I want you to hear what he says. So he's connecting a dam and talking about how they finance the dam and their profit to uh, interventions in your home and smart housing. Now, he, he leads with lights. Now, you remember how when I went through the Vantage Point Capital Partners portfolio, and again, these were exited uh, uh, investments, but there were quite a few LED light companies, right? So he's not coming in here saying like, well, later on, he does talk about Bright Hive and the energy thing, but he's here selling... You know, again, which hat is he wearing? Is he wearing the venture capitalist investor in batteries and LED lights, or is he wearing it in, in the environmental, or is it just hybrid? And we're just supposed to presume that the, the new version of environmentalism means we're, we're going to tear out a bunch of stuff and sell you a bunch of new crappy stuff that will spy on you, right? And and that's where it's at. And it's important to understand, too, I think a lot of people, like, they, we don't really like LED lights. I, I'm not a fan of LED lights at all. And... Um, and that these lights now, again, they're mutable and they're tunable. And I think that there is this idea that eventually, 
you know, they're going to be using light-based frequency to program people, right? And, and this is not outrageous. Like they, the, literally the science is there to do that, like not at scale yet, but they're doing it in lab settings to use these uh, devices to tune it. So if you create a smart housing and then you create revenue streams based on the behavior of people in the housing using things that you've made them put in their house, that is very concerning. So, okay, so he's gonna go on and talk about some other things. We want to go into a million homes and tear out antiquated hot water boilers and air conditioners and replace them with more efficient models that use eight or 10% of the energy. It's going to cost us $100 million. We want to make 15% profits and they stamp it approved and they go ahead and do it. And as a result of that law, utilities in California make money by doing good things. Okay, so this is the, this is the well-being argument, right? So who's saying, now I know, that, you know, and I know there's a lot of issues around the California, California wildfires and the actual source of those wildfires. Um, I know, so, and I, I, I hold those concerns as well, but there are also aspects of like the degrading in the electrical infrastructure that might have led to some of the fires as well. And so whether or not that was the actual source of all the fires or some of the fires, but the idea of like this free market and that we, they're, they're making money by doing good things. The reality is in the aftermath of that, there, it's not a wonderful thing in California, like the energy over there. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not the promised land, shall we say, right? And so if they say by doing good things, who gets to decide what the good thing is, right? And that's my concern with the distributed, uh, auto decentralized autonomous organization, the DAOs and the framing of the token engineering, again, with Switch, uh, with the Token Commons Foundation, with the digital identity, is that someone's gonna be deciding well-being, right? And, and they're gonna say it's well-being and then you're going to, it's gonna be a totalitarian well-being. Instead of making money by doing bad things to the rest of us. And that's how the free market ought to work. You have to rationalize the free market so that it serves the public. So that's it. That's the Commons Foundation. Rationalize the market so it serves the public. That is token engineering. And that, those, that token engineering is gonna be applied to a blockchain de decentralized energy grid. Rather than destroys the public interest. As a direct result of that law, Californians today use half the energy that everybody else in our country uses. Californians use 6,000 kilowatt hours per year. The rest of it's used between 11 and 14,000. That means that every product that's made in California is going to be cheaper because they use half the energy to make it. The ironic thing about that is, is I'm realizing that like the things, like they talk about products, like, I think what's moving forward, we're just going to more and more exist with digital products. You know, I, I, I actually tried to send like a tiny little thing to uh, across the border to Canada last week. It literally, it was a six inch by 10 inch envelope. And it was it was maybe uh, a little over a quarter inch thick. So it wasn't machinable, I guess. It cost me $40 to mail that to Canada. And I said, is there like it, it doesn't have to go super fast. Is there any other option? They're like, no, it can only go international priority. And then I said, oh, well, can you tell me when it's due to arrive? And they said, no, we can't. So they're like, hi, and I kind of joked with the people in the line at the post office. I said, okay, and, and a guy next to me is like, yeah, I tried to send some, a box of clothes to my daughter in college in some other country and like it cost $400, you know, or something like that to mail the thing. And so I think that really like in all these ways, we're going to be squeezed into like just having digital items, right? Everything is just going to be NFT. And that's, that's part of a, 
I think that this perfect day or the pervasive day, uh, this idea that you would have like, I don't know, a linen, uh, some sort of natural sheath and everybody wears the same coveralls, only you can project your NFTs on them or something. And that's what goes for fashion in, in the sustainable climate. So um, anyway, I just want to make this point out that this idea that somehow because the energy is less, and I'm not so sure about that, that, that all of the products in California are going to be less expensive for people and that's going to be better is, is an accurate portrayal of how it actually is. So, and now, you know, it, it, the, this is what makes sense. We need a marketplace. And when we develop that kind of marketplace, we all are going to experience the prosperity of it. And now this is, he's talking to Houston energy people, right? We're all going to experience the prosperity of having created this marketplace. So our regular people in this room hearing this conversation about the marketplace that's being engineered, I see someone saying like, you know, they don't get to use, you know, a, a gas stove or they don't get to use a wood burning stove, you know, to heat their home. Um, yeah, the, the prosperity is going to accrue to a limited number of people. We've done this before. In 1979, we built an ARPANET grid in our country, a national marketplace for the internet. And today, most Americans have a personal computer. And what, because we built that marketplace. And what happened to the cost of information, of bits and bytes? It has plummeted to zero. Yeah, and that's part of this problem of reality management is the cost of bits and bytes has run to zero. And so in that, now we have huge amounts of noise, right? We have a reality that is constructed of um, everything, you know, uh, everything. And you, you're trying to sift through it and make sense of what it is. Um, and it's very, very difficult because we're being bombarded. Now, I'm not saying there was some golden day like age back in the, you know, 60s where we just had four, you know, TV stations and it was like that was wonderful. Like, I'm not saying that. But we do have to acknowledge that the cost of bits and bytes going to zero isn't necessarily an unalloyed uh, success. Essentially, it has changed life in very fundamental ways and changed our cognitive processes and changed our social processes which is exactly what's gonna to happen to electrons as soon as we build a national grid for energy. All of these little gadgets that we have now, like iPhones and iPads, are all the offspring of the revolution that was triggered because we built a national grid for telecommunications. And what's happened to the cost of telecommunications? It, I, okay, so they're talking about it going down. This is a longer thing and you can look at the whole thing. But I, I think this idea, what I wanted to get across is we can become our own energy entrepreneurs through our home, that they are that he's pitching a national grid with free market economics. Um, but it's all going to be linked to smart devices, right, under in the name of climate sustainability. And that's connected to his funders, right, the, the impact finance crowd. And um and it's, you know, he's connecting it to the internet, right? The ARPANET, and which it is, it is an extension, right? The energy grid is the extended ARPANET. And that is part of the cybernetics. And I think it, it is a parasitic force. It is that what the rails that the smart contract layer is gonna run on. And the smart contract layer will, will do the steering uh, with the signaling that happens through votes and tokens and money and digital content. And we will be steered in, in really, um, ways that that concern me a lot so um you know i'll just uh you know just go back in closing thank you quantum heart cafe for a very lovely comment yesterday talking about the slime mold and thank you my friend who did the guest post on the slime mold and understanding um emergence again um 
This is Quantum Heart. I know you made a connection with the Ant computer and what happened with the Substack also reminds me of Slime Mold. In Emergence, which is a book, Stephen Johnson talks about how individual slime mold cells trigger a formation of an organism by emitting something called a cyclic AMP, AMP, like a pheromone. And those with the most cyclic AMP I wonder if this would be equivalent to influencers attracting an audience could attract enough slime cells that then forms the organism. And so I think um, in this, and then you know, we I go on to sort of talk a little bit about the polarity and, and this representation of polarity in the Aurora Borealis, which Aurora has its own sort of meaning um, in the space as well, uh, but the magenta and the green and the polarization and the, the slime mold and moving us in this direction. Um, like what if the entire health freedom thing was the simulation? Like what if this whole idea of a movement was an evolutionary social simulation modeling program gone live, right? What if the the rise and fall of personalities, the creation of influencers, the creation of cohorts, uh, the, the building up of these uh, blockchain or other... Uh, you know, emerging technology media platforms and the feedback loops. Um, what if this was all really like a polarizing simulation game, right? And 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 what if you know at the end of the day we end up with a uh, a situation where people are on the one hand feeling like they are have are very empowered, um, but they're only empowered within this digital garden. Um, they don't trust anything outside of it, and they um, they're somewhat incapacitated to actually function in the real world because they're so used to actually operating within digital worlds that are created for them, and they're they're operating from you know this idea of the uh, oh let me see I'll, I'll I'll pull it up again the 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 no not not that one the uh, per peripheral like they're off operating from their peripheral space, right? The peripheral attitude shift um, because they're kept constantly in motion and uh, disturbed. Um, and then and then offered shelter within the, the warm, co cozy bosom of their program community. Um, and it's it's sad. It's it's a sad situation. And honestly, I'm 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 honestly very concerned with where things are going because I can I can see a future of uh, efficiently managed pandemics with early treatment protocols funded by billionaires um, and people who developed uh, mRNA technologies in in the in the in the white coats that were framed as the resistance. I can I can see that happening, and I that doesn't feel good to me at all. That doesn't feel good to me at all. And um, and. I think that these substacks are, are a big part of it. So anyway, I've gone on for way too long here, but I want to um, thank you for processing this with me. Again, I'm not I'm not trying just to stir the pot. Um, I, I feel like in some ways this this thing with the substacks extending into a fifth day is either stirring the pot or doing one of these A/B testing things going on. Um, I really am hoping that we can talk about the function of the machine that we're in, so that we can. Um, uh, have a better understanding of it. And, and I do feel like it's sort of like a card trick or a magician's trick. Once you see it, like once you see how it works, you're less susceptible to it next time. And so I just invite you to consider when you're in spaces, whether they're substacks or whether there are other things that are, have these built-in communities with signaling that you think about what I presented today. So anyway, thank you very much, everybody. Talk to you later.